Friday the 13th making that movie way back when, we had very little money, very little time, and we had to just focus on, on our goal, which was to create this sort of scary campfire tale without having ambitions to make it you know, more than what it was. And in that sort of like single-minded purpose, I think it still survives. And I think that the notion of franchise horror um, films is very well known and taken for granted, but it didn't exist when I did Friday the 13th. Nobody was ever thinking about, you know, what will the next one be? I mean, it would be a big enough job just to create the first one, but no one could imagine that there would be a need for, um, for yet another Friday the 13th. And when it was released, Paramount said, gee, we would like to do another one. I think it evolved into something very different from where we started, uh, which was sort of a reality-based thriller with a little twist at the end. But after Jason got his hockey mask and became established, um, it became sort of a dependable, sort of blue-collar horror film. If you're going to go see Friday the 13th, you knew what you were going to get. And I think that somehow or other in that dependability is the reason why it persisted. It was a brand. And I think that in the same way that uh, you know what to expect when you go to see a, I don't know, Godzilla movie or a James Bond movie, um, uh, Friday the 13th became that dependable. And I, I think that's the reason it survived. I don't want to scare anyone, but I'm going to give it to you straight about Jason. His body was never recovered from the lake after he drowned. And if you listen to the old timers in town, they'll tell you he's still out there. Some sort of demented creature surviving in the wilderness. Full grown by now. Stalking. Stealing what he needs. Living off wild animals and vegetation. Some folks claim they've even seen him. Right in this area. The girl who survived that night at Camp Blood, that Friday the 13th, she claims she saw him. Disappeared two months later. Vanished. Blood was everywhere. No one knows what happened to her. Legend has it that Jason saw his mother beheaded that night, and that he took his revenge. A revenge that he'll continue to seek if anyone ever enters his wilderness again. And by now, I guess you all know, we're the first to return here. Five years. Five long years he's been dormant, and he's hungry. Jason's out there, watching, always on the prowl for intruders, waiting to kill, waiting to devour, thirsty for young blood. system, okay? I don't want to hear any more about it. It's ancient history. Jason drowned, Mrs. Voorhees was killed, and Camp Crystal Lake is off limits. Got it? Hi, and welcome a horror movie podcast where we're dead serious about horror movies. We usually produce a bi-weekly show that's released every other Friday, but from Friday the 13th of February through Friday the 13th of March, we're going to celebrate the Friday the 13th franchise by bringing you a five-part series featuring in-depth reviews and analysis just like we did last October for the Halloween franchise. So we are going to review the entire 
Friday the 13th franchise horror movie podcast style. And if you've been listening to this show, you know what that means. So for episodes 42 through 46, you're going to get a new podcast release each Friday. And this is episode 43. It is the second episode of the five-part series. And in this installment, we'll be covering Friday the 13th Part 2 from 1981, Friday the 13th Part 3 from 1982, and Friday the 13th, the final chapter from 1984. And I am your host, Jay of the Dead, podcasting from Salt Lake City. And my co-hosts tonight are... Dave, Dr. Shaq Becker from uh, the Philadelphia suburbs. And Wolfman Josh. How's it going, Jay? It's good, buddy. Thank you guys for being here for another week. I'm really excited about this. Now, our prize giveaway for our previous episode was like the first four movies. Okay. And this week, it is a small Jason Voorhees... You could call it an action figure because it does look like, you know, the early 80s G.I. Joe guys <laughs> or like a Star Wars figure, but it's it's a collectible. OK, so I'm not ashamed. It's very cool. So we have one of those and we no, it's intentionally supposed to kind of look like a Star Wars figure. It's even in like the kind of. Yeah, it's called a reaction figure and it's kind of has that Kenner look to it. <laughs> it, it totally does. Absolutely. It's really cool. And we got a little poster too, which isn't anything um, super special. But anyway, that's the prize for this week. And guys, what are the hoops that the listeners need to jump through for this prize? Well, I think they need to do the same thing they did last week because we want to make sure we get as many people as possible's top three Friday the 13th movies so we can know what the audience, take the audience's temperature for our episode five um, franchise overview. So I think people should definitely still come to the website or email you or, or tweet us with their top three Friday the 13th movies in order, as well as the city that they're from So for the t-shirt. But I think to add to this for the this episode and possibly the next episode, I think it'd be great if uh, we up the ante a little bit. And I think they have to leave a review on iTunes or if they've already done that, they need to tweet out something about these Friday the 13th episodes. We'll get a little <laughs> advertising going for a horror movie podcast. Oh, that's nice. Okay. I would do that for an action figure. I would too. <laughs> I do it and I don't even get an action figure. <laughs> yes, you do. Okay. Well, thank you. So there you have it, listeners. Um, That's how you do it. And we are good for these prizes. We'll make good on it. Please participate. Leave a review. Let us know, you know, what your your name was and where you know where you left the review, or you know, post something on Facebook or Twitter. You know, we'll take we'll have to take your word for that, but but we'll still love it. Let's get going on this because I'm I'm really fired up and ready to go. So uh, just as a warning, we typically don't reveal spoilers on horror movie podcast, but in order to discuss this franchise as in depth as we're hoping to go. Uh, we will be discovering major plot spoilers for the entire franchise, and especially in this episode for 2, 3, and 4. And as with the Halloween reviews, we just talk about each film one at a time on its own terms. And then in our fifth part, we're going to do a franchise overview. So without any further delay, let's move into our feature review of Friday the 13th Part 2 from 1981. Did you know a young boy drowned here? He was my son. And today is his birthday. 
great to have you all here at our new counselor training center. Being a counselor isn't the gravy summer job everybody thinks it is. Hey, you guys, look at this. It's Camp Blood. This place is on the same lake as we're going to be. All right, Friday the 13th, part two from 1981. This was directed by Steve Miner. And by the way, this film is currently streaming on Netflix. Watch it instantly. And Josh tells me it's also streaming on Amazon Prime for free right now as well. That's right. So, yeah, you have no excuse. We hope that you're able to watch these films along with us so you can uh, participate in the discussion and just jump in. So, The synopsis for this, and this is kind of, again, spoilery, but I think it was about two months after Mrs. Voorhees' massacre at Camp Blood uh, that her murderous son, Jason, tracks down and kills the only survivor. Yeah, this film opens with Alice being taken out. (laughs) And then uh, five years later, you got this guy named Paul. He opens a training facility for camp counselors. And they're located near the Crystal Lake camp. And, of course, Jason begins killing off the counselors once again. And, you know, it's actually a a very similar film. In terms of premise, this is very similar to the first film, actually. And the first thing I want to say about that, you guys. Now, this, this preceded... Okay, this came out in 1981. So, this movie preceded... The Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, right? Which is like 1986. But I just wanted to say, and maybe I don't know if it's related to this or not, but the Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 is basically, in so many ways, a retread. It's just a poor man's retread or a a lesser retread of the original 1974 film. Well, in many ways, this is very much a retread of the first film from 1980 because the biggest noteworthy thing to me here is that instead of having, you know, Jason's mother, Mrs. Voorhees, taking her revenge on the death of her son, Jason, you've got the reverse of that where Jason is taking revenge on the death of his mother. (laughs) And uh, so the first question I just want to ask you guys is, uh, uh, what do you think about, I mean, that's a pretty brazen and bold move, right? To say, oh, okay, let's just flip that in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's brazen before we even get to that point. The very fact that Jason is on the screen is pretty brazen um, right from the outset. And as, as Dave mentioned on the last episode, um, you know, it was somewhat controversial among the crew. I, I think Tom Savini left the film because they were going to bring Jason back. Um, yeah, he. I, I, I'm looking at his quote here. He's like, Jason doesn't exist, okay? He died in the first movie. For, he, for him to be around today means what? He survived by living off a crawfish on the side of the lake for 35 years? <laughs> <laughs> so I think that's funny. Um, and also, I think we mentioned this last episode as well, but initially they had talked about kind of doing a for, uh, Halloween 3 season of the witch thing where they would just take the Friday the 13th name and do kind of different uh, scary-themed shows like they eventually did with the television show. Um, so I, I don't know who eventually just came up with the idea, maybe you guys do, to put Jason in the movie, but it was bold and brazen. And, uh, and yeah, it's interesting that they just flipped the original concept on its head. And, and, and really, this is kind of closer to Psycho, I guess, in some ways. Mm-hmm. I think it might have just stemmed from the fact that 
Paramount came back to them and said, look, we need another one. <laughs> and, you know, what are they going to do? They, they don't have Mrs. Voorhees anymore. So maybe it was just saying, okay, well, who else do we got? We kind of showed Jason at the end there. Maybe we can, I don't know. I don't know for sure. But I'm thinking that might have been the, the that might have been the line of thinking they were using was who else are we going to use? Well, the crazy thing is they had Alice, right? They had Adrian King, yeah. And and you know I talked about last time about how I felt like um, Victor Miller's kind of reading of the Halloween screenplay or or, or film largely affected the way he kind of um, which tropes he kind of carried over. And I think cemented kind of uh, a lot of horror movie tropes in doing that. I think he takes it even they take it even further with part two by making this decision right away that um, this guy that we thought was dead, he's not dead. And this girl who was our final girl, our survivor, the person we care about, the person we've grown to love, we're going to kill her off immediately. <laughs> and so this like this movie really kind of sets the tone for 80s slasher movies to say it's not about these kids, it's about the killer, and mm. he's basically indestructible. Wow. I've got, so I've got so many things to say to that, and I'm probably going to forget all of them. Uh, but for, first of all, that really became a slasher convention where the final girl who survived the end of the previous film, yeah. she is the first victim to be dispatched in the next film. That becomes... Uh, you know, a convention. And as far as I can tell, and quote me if I'm wrong, because I'm not, don't quote me, actually. Correct me if I'm wrong. <laughs> yeah, please don't go around quoting me when I'm wrong. But but basically, uh, <laughs> Josh always does that to me. No, no, but, <laughs> but please, please tell me, like, I this is the first instance of that that I know of. But But am I wrong? Am I just not realizing any other more obvious instances where the final girl from the previous film is the first victim in this second in the sequel. We even have other horror franchises with this many films. I mean, I, this is really one of the first major horror sequels. And I think it was, it was Steve, was it Steve Miner or was, uh, uh, can't remember who it was. He was saying, you know, back at this time, you just, you didn't do it. It was okay. There was Jaws two. But you you didn't do sequels to horror movies back then. It just it just wasn't ha it didn't happen. I mean, if you think about it, there was no Psycho two until years later. There was no Halloween two until uh, after this sequel. Yeah. Yeah. So all there really was there really weren't. I mean, I guess you go back to the forties and they, yeah, there were sequels to the Frankenstein's and the Draculas and everything like that. Sure. But you know, in recent times, no, they, they just, they didn't do horror sequels. This, this really sort of started that train in motion. Mm -hmm. Now going back to those universal films, that's actually a good point. Those were also about the monsters. So in some yeah. ways this is carrying on that tradition. Right. Yeah. And, and it's weird how in a slasher film, for example, um, by the way, I just want to take a time to say, I love that point that you just brought up, Josh. That's really a great point. But yeah, in the slasher film, it became, you know, there is not a star other than the killer. You know, it's you you have a lead character, you'll have a protagonist of sorts, you know, and a lot of times it ends up being a final girl, but you know, the killer is the attraction. That's why people are coming back to see the movie again. And and it does, it reminds you of how Dracula was the attraction or Frankenstein was the attraction. But see why 
why do we want to see it's weird right because superhero movies kind of have the same thing where it's like we see these people with supernatural abilities these beings who have a way to affect and influence other human beings in the movie who are minor characters and they do the same thing in every movie but we just want to see more of it and and i can understand maybe with superhero movies because it's like okay it's a fantastical escapism where um we take our humdrum lives and then we imagine ourselves in place of that person who can fly but it's like why do we want to keep seeing movies where michael myers is stabbing people or where jason is hacking people up like what is it that we keep wanting to revisit there well i think for one thing they've got the most uh, maybe that's not true as true with these slashers as it was with the earlier monsters but they have the most charisma of any of the characters on screen because yeah. a lot of those characters are being set up as fodder and um you know, and that's certainly true of the slasher movies, um, especially, you know, I would say that's that's true in some, a lot of these Friday the 13th films. <clears throat> the characters, we don't really care about. <laughs> they, they don't, And they don't spend much time establishing them. They didn't in the first film. Um, they do a bit more in the second film. But oftentimes, they're just not putting much effort into those characters. And so the thing that's holding your attention or holding my attention is the mystery and the unknown of like of this killer and, and what's he going to do next and who's he going to kill next. And, you know, as Tom Savini has kind of said, it, it eventually becomes, and how's he going to kill him? How's he going to kill the next kid? Right. The kill scenes. That's really what, what it came down to is, is how creative were they and, and, and how far would they, would they push it? Oh, and, and maybe I bet Dave, who is a historian of film, he could probably answer this for us. Sorry to put you on the spot like that, but but uh, oh, no, you're not. You do it all the time. Going. <laughs> <laughs> that's why. That's why you get paid the big bucks on this show. So uh, basically, yeah. um, <laughs> you can, uh, by the way, uh, I don't know if you have the right address when when you send those boxes. <laughs> so what I was gonna say is, um, I, it's weird though that we're actually rooting for the bad guy. In essence, I mean, there mm-hmm. are people out there who consider jason the good guy (laughs) and that's funny i mean we're gonna be talking about that later on down the road but uh uh, you know i think we're quite there in this film though i think (laughs) no i mean it's interesting because they are taking a huge risk they're rebooting it with all new kids and a brand new killer so really it's almost like its own it's almost a standalone film the way the first film was in, in a lot of ways. It's its um, own primary film is what you're exactly. saying. Exactly. And the people, by this point, they didn't have that connection with Jason that they would develop in the later films. Especially you because know, the continuity is ridiculous if you actually try to make it work. It's but. so right. ridiculous. Right. <laughs> but what I was going to ask you, Dave, is like, so for many years in the history of the cinema, I mean, we just, it's just characteristically common to root for the good guy and you don't cheer for the bad guy well um when did we start cheering for the bad guy i mean when did that start happening true that's a that is a good question i mean you go back to uh i'm gonna have to think i mean you're talking like just in movies in general or you're looking at horror or well uh, yeah either or i mean when i think about frankenstein you know with frankenstein's monster he is a sympathetic Monster. He's very sim- he's very sympathetic, and and there you can you can make the argument that the people around him are at times more monstrous than than he is. Yeah, you know, especially in Bride of Frankenstein with Pretorius and 
and so forth. But boy, that that's that's a good question. When when rooting for the Bears, you know what? I think if you go back to the 1930s, and part of the reason they had such a problem with the gangster films yeah. like Public Enemy and, and Little Caesar was that it made the lifestyle look somewhat attractive. I mean, even though that they didn't set out to do that, Scarface, they didn't set out to do that to make it look attractive. There was the fear that it would, and that's when the FBI started getting involved, and 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 they started saying, "Hey, you can't make these movies anymore." You know, you want to set put out Scarface, fine, but you got to put out the subtitle "Shame of the Nation." <laughs> you know, we got to let people know that that this is not that these aren't the people they should be rooting for. These are the bad guys because they were the movie. I mean, they were the central part of the movie. They were the focus. And you look at Public Enemy; you can't help but like James Cagney in that movie. Oh yeah. Well, and, and for a long time too. I mean, in that in that era, my understanding was like that from the censors that it's like okay, well, you can have a character like that, but that character has to be killed in the end. Yeah, right. And and they they would do that, but there'd always be sort of a you you still feel a little sad to see them go. You know, even if they deserved it, even if you know they deserved it, you know. I mean, even if you look at something like The Godfather, the Don's death in The Godfather. Spoiler warning. The Don's death in The Godfather is almost like this 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 grand operatic sort of event, you know? Yes. Like you're looking and saying, wow, a king has just died. Yes. But this is somebody who has killed people <laughs> and has had people killed. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. You yeah. know, so then that's kind of what they were doing even even in the 30s. I mean, you look at the death scene with James Cagney and, and Public Enemy, and you can't help but even the way it's presented, there's there's it's it's just there's some some sadness with it. And I was going to say something must have happened in the 20s, in those roaring 20s, because Public Enemy is 1931, Frankenstein's 1931, Dracula's 1931, Scarface is 1932. You said something happened at the end of the 20s or the 30s, and that something was the Great Depression. That's why we had all these awful gangster movies, and we yeah. had all these monster movies, because people were going through an awful, awful time in this world. And yeah. this kind of escapism, I mean, they used horror movies back then the way that I use horror movies now, which is to feel better about my own life. One of the most amazing, my favorite era in movie history is what they call pre-code, which is 30 to 34. And it's even a misnomer to call it pre-code because the code was around since 19, since the late 20s. Mm -hmm. It's just the way it was set up. They had Will Hayes in there sort of enforcing the code or suggesting the code. But he would, the people he was, you know, he would say, hey, you maybe don't do this, maybe don't do that. But he still worked for the studios, so the studio head still had the final say. He had no real power to enforce these things. So he'd say, hey, maybe you shouldn't show the, you know, the, the monster throwing the little girl in the lake or whatever. And the studio said, no, we think it's going to make money. We're going to keep it in there. They, it basically became a joke. I mean, I read an article at one point where they – we're saying like it's the 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 uh, it's the um the code like is in the like thirty two or something where the paper said the code isn't even a joke anymore it's a distant memory because they're just completely ignoring it yeah. and it wasn't until like this 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 sort of perfect storm of government science and religion got together and said enough is enough that the studio said okay well we have to enforce it like a, a, a college uh, was doing a study of 
of violence in movies and how it influences kids. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were finding it not in favor of, of the movies. You had the government getting involved with censorship and you had the Catholic, uh, the League of Decency coming out and saying, look, you, you have a code, you're not following it and we're going to come out against you. You know, and and we're gonna and we're gonna um, we're gonna tell all our members to stay away from all of your movies. So that was really when it was like, okay, game over. But from that four-year period, and it's it, the what is the pre-code? Anything goes. I mean, you had Cecil B. DeMille had tying a nude woman to a pole in in um oh god, what was that? What was that movie? Uh, the name escapes me. Anyway, one of his big religious epics sign of the cross i believe it was you had these these searing dramas where you know if if you look in the 1950s you know house of wax with vincent price there's a character in there who's an alcoholic uh who kind of like the police are questioning him and he's kind of like the one who sort of spills the beans on what's going on in the original movie from the 19 from the early 30s i think it was 31 32 he was a drug addict yeah so they actually had to change it for the 50s when they re-released public enemy in the later 30s, they gave it a re-release. They had to cut something like eight or nine minutes out of it in order to now qualify for the code. Doc, when you talked about that study, I actually read that, the pain fund studies. And by the way, side note on that, what they found, one of the findings of that study was that the children who were exposed to horrific images when they were very young, that they were in essence, and I'm paraphrasing here, but they were scarred mentally. Like that stayed with them their whole lives, which is, I don't know why I'm laughing. It's just, I mean, that's how the cinema can affect a person. Yeah. And and interestingly enough, there was no really horror movie back then when they first, when Dracula first came out, the first of the talking era, the first horror movie that we now view as the first, like the birth of horror. Uh, in, in the in the in the uh, sound era, uh, they promoted it as a romance <laughs> because they didn't have horror back then. They they were promoting it as, <laughs> as a love story. That's interesting. Are you talking American films? Because like White Zombie and well, I mean, if you look at Nosferatu, that's German film, obviously. But- yeah, that that was a German film, and I don't know how much at that point. I know some of those had made their way over here. The Germans were where a lot of it. A lot of it was, you know, the the Germans. Well, Nosferatu was all but destroyed, as we know, right? And that was no, 20- Nosferatu was pretty much gone because of the court case. Yeah, that, that was twenty-two. Right. Yeah, I mean, but you still had things like the Gollum. You still had, right. um, you know, certain. I think in Sweden too was it uh, the Phantom Carriage? I, I, I think so. You did have there was horror in Europe, um, but when it came, when it's here in America, I mean, Carl Lamely was never, you know, if I had a universal, never embraced the horror genre. I mean, it was his son, Carl Jr., who was really pushing to do it. Carl Lamely never liked the horror movies. You know, and he never, he's like, why are we doing this? Why are we making these these horrific, these awful, these dreadful, these frightening films? You know, he was not a fan of them. It was his son who saw the potential of them, and, and obviously he was right. Yeah. The thing is, I, I, I think just, you know, going back to the initial question, which is at what point did we start rooting for the bad guy? I mean, to me, I kind of pinpoint it with Michael Myers. I mean, I hate to go back to that discussion again. I'm not trying to, but I really think that he was the bad guy that people started getting behind and thinking, oh, I like this monster. He is a fascinating monster. I want to see more of this monster. Yes, but at, at what point? Are you talking the first Halloween? Because I don't know if that's the case in the first Halloween. 
Oh, I think it is, actually. I mean, I, I really do. I mean, I realize that we look back at that through the spectacles of a classic cinema. Yeah, because I think us. at the time, I mean, he was the one who he was the when he's coming at you, that's like total fear. I mean, that's that's what really I mean, when, when he's just relentlessly coming at you, I don't think you have time to say. I mean, there was never a time where I wanted to see him win out over Jamie Lee. Well, yeah, I, I, I agree with Doc. I think it's actually Jason Voorhees in, well, I don't know. So, okay, so Halloween 2, it's definitely Michael Myers by Halloween 2, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. And so that's an 81. Um, Halloween, or let's see, Friday the 13th 2, I wouldn't say you're rooting for um, Jason yet, would you? No, he's still too new. He's still too new. Yeah. yeah. It's until part 3 of Friday the 13th, so that's 1982. So maybe it was Halloween 2. In 81. Yeah. See, I disagree with you. I, I take issue. I really think it was the first Halloween. And remember, I'm not the guy who's always pounding on the Halloween drum around here. I mean, I respect it. But here's why I say that about Halloween. This is the best proof I can give if it's proof. <laughs> he is the part of the, the film that you're watching. And it's like when he's on screen, you're absolutely captivated. And, and oh. otherwise, the film is kind of slow as i've said before except when he's on screen then it like heats it up and you're always looking for him in the frame and and i really do i think that people looked for him well no i think i think what they did really well in in halloween um this uh, the way i read it was that you never knew where he was going to pop up Mm -hmm. and that added to the tension you know, I don't know that you were so much looking for him as you were like, oh, God, he's going to come out from right around that yeah. corner. I know it, you know, and that that created the tension that created the fear. And I think they did that masterfully in that movie. Carpenter, you know, did a did a great job with that. That's one of the great strengths of that movie is, you know, you never know where is he going to show up. But I don't know that people in the audience at that time, I think they were I think they were scared they were they were they had the they had the crap scared out of them i don't know that they were sitting there saying boy i hope i see michael myers in a minute i think they were saying oh god i know he's here where is he for god's (laughs) sakes and to the point that when he actually does pop out it's almost like a bit of a relief yeah because you don't have that tension anymore but it was a good thing i argue that was a good thing that's why people love that movie so much because it was a good ride it's just like maybe the way you feel back maybe if you saw it twice Maybe the second time you saw it, you might feel that way because then all the beats are gone and all the, you know, you don't have that that tension building and you kind of know what to expect. Maybe at that point, then you're sitting there kind of enjoying, hey, let's uh, wait till you see what he does to these kids, you know, when you go with your friends or whatever. But I don't know that first time through. I don't think I don't think you're looking forward to seeing Mike Myers. Let me try one, one more one more way to convince you. See if this works and then I'll shut up about this. Well, let me do, let me go first, and then you can finish it up. Because I think I think mine is maybe not as strong as yours. <laughs> okay, go for it. So I think uh, I'm going to go with Jason Voorhees, Halloween Part Three, 1982, because I think Friday the 13th Part One, you're you know that's obviously it's it's a you don't you don't know who the killer is. Part mm-hmm. Two, I don't think you're rooting for Jason. Part three, you're definitely you're there to watch Jason by Friday Thirteenth Part Three in 1982, and they throw characters into Part Three that are they're more caricatures, yeah, yeah, and and they weren't even in the original script just for him to kill. Now let's go back to Halloween. I don't think the first two Halloween movies. I think they were supposed to be about Jamie Lee Curtis's character as much as they are about Michael. Um, I think it's not until 
Halloween part four that they realized that Michael Myers was the star because they kill him off in two. They completely switch gears for Halloween three. And it's not until until the failure of three that they realize, oh, wait a minute. People are watching this because of Michael Myers. Mm -hmm. Let's bring that guy back. No, that's right. Everything. That's 1988. Everything you said right there is correct. And yeah, I mean, we've we've heard them say as much. And yeah, I mean, that's kind of through this, the perspective of hindsight. But the thing is, I think the reality of what was happening was different from, you know, the realization. Like, people realized later, but the reality was they thought he was cool. And, and, and here's, yeah. here's the thing I was going to give the doc here. So when you first saw The Exorcist... Like, I don't know about you, but when Reagan was like on a couple the, weeks ago, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Well, you could probably answer this really well then. But yeah, when I remember when I first saw it, it's like, it's like, get, get her off the screen, get her out. Like, I didn't want to yes. look at her. It, I was very uncomfortable and she is like horrifying. And that's how I felt about Reagan. But when yes. Michael Myers on the screen, yes, he's scary. Yes, it's suspenseful, but it's also like that dude's kind of cool actually, you know? So that's why I think he was the first bad guy that we were really rooting for, even if we didn't realize it. Well, okay. I didn't get too deep into like a, like a, uh, (laughs) you know, almost like a, like a, I don't know what am I trying to say here? Psychiatric evaluation. Yeah, exactly. I didn't get too, I didn't exactly. Right. I I didn't, I didn't pull out the ink blots. That's how we do this out. I'm just, I'm just sort of, you know, the, the way I was looking, I mean, people, in retrospect, when you go and you're talking to your friends about the movie, you're going to talk about Michael Myers. Mm-hmm. Okay. But I don't think the experience of watching the movie that first time while you're watching it, I just can't see that. It would be almost like saying everybody who saw Jaws wanted to see the shark come out and eat up a whole bunch of people. I don't think that was the case. I think that that the shark is where what created the suspense, what created the, the the tension and the horror. And I think Michael Myers is, you know, for want of a better word, the shark of the first Halloween. Crap, you where just... you're not looking to see. You're not look. You know, yes, it's 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 what he's doing in retrospect. You leave the theater and you call you you call up your friend and you say, "Oh, this guy was awesome. He came out. He did all this stuff." But the experience of watching the movie, I don't believe that that you're sitting there in the theater that first time through and saying, "Boy, where's Michael? I can't wait for him. Why isn't he on screen? I can't wait to see who he kills next." You made me change my answer right there. I wanna I wanna renege my answer and put it on Jaws the shark. <laughs> so okay. you're right about Jeez. that no you persuaded me because yeah i mean that's the experience i had watching jaws because i wanted to see the shark monster eating people i wanted to see him turn up so yeah maybe jaws was the place that was where the tide turned <laughs> well, pun intended not talking about slashers i'm going all the way back to 1931 because i i think frankenstein and dracula we were on board from the start 41 with the wolfman absolutely it's all about the wolfman and, and yes Yes. Yeah, and then if you look at you look at that original Dracula from 1931, you take Bela Lugosi out of that. That is one dull movie. I mean, (laughs) Todd Browning, Todd Browning. I mean, I've said it before. When you look at the the Spanish version, that director he brought it alive a little more with his direction, the way he moved the camera. Todd Browning, it was just static. I mean, the camera's just sitting there. If it wasn't for Bela Lugosi, that would be an unremarkable film. 
Mm -hmm. Well, if it's okay to move on from this debate, and we'd love to have the listeners weigh in in the show notes for um, episode 43 here, but honestly, something that Josh said a long time ago, I want to defend what happened here between the first Friday the 13th film and the second one, because people always say, and I, I will fight people on this, people always say, Jason didn't exist and it was a dream that 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 thing was a dream sequence or whatever. Like that. What did you say about that? It's open to interpretation. I was saying that the guy who thought of making the dream sequence at the end of the first one, Tom Savini, right. Right. Said it was always a dream sequence and Jason doesn't exist. Okay. And, And if you think about it, Jay, what happens in that dream sequence in the first one, how did she then end up in the hospital? Right. Well, no, I'm not arguing that it's not a dream sequence. Okay. But what I am arguing is that his, this entity, this, the spirit of Jason, I mean, we're going to get into what he ends up being or becoming later on, but, but, but this existence of, of his soul or whatever you want to call it, I think that was a real thing. And that's how okay. I, I read it. And here's why I say that. Because the monster in horror films, the monster is able to, um, I guess, pursue and catch its victims. And what happens there in that dream sequence, uh, it's like it almost predates Freddy Krueger action here. Because what happens is he he actually gets to her a little bit um, through her dream sequence. And it's almost like an omen or a precursor to his actual arrival. Now I know that um, I'm doing a lot of retconning here in defense mm-hmm. of the series. I, I don't care about that. I mean, I think it works th- if we look at it this way, because I think that he is a, a, a being, a supernatural being of sorts. And I, I totally disagree with the people who say, Oh, he was alive all along. It's like, no, he drowned in the lake, but for whatever reason, and, and I, I actually kind of like Bill Shetty's theory because he mentioned this in passing in our previous episode. Bill Shetty said, you know, he saw what happened to his mom, like some from wherever he was, whatever nether region he was around the lake there. He saw what happened to his mom and he's like, ah, that's it. I'm coming back and I'm going to whoops a may. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> OK, hold on. Hold on. Well, I, I tell you, the only the only thing I take uh, I, I, I take issue with in your statement, Jay, was when you said you don't care. Clearly, you care more than the filmmakers did. <laughs> no, 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 no. See, what you're talking about is that age old thing like the author's dead. Like, I don't care what the filmmakers, if they thought that way or not. It's like you can read it this way and it works. No, it well, doesn't. It doesn't work. Uh, why? Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Do, how deep do we want to get into this? Because Let's do there, it. Let's go deep. There's a lot of crybabies in the Friday the 13th fandom. And I know like us, oh. we, we Halloween fans take a lot of flack. <laughs> but what I've found since we did our first episode is... Fighting words. The Friday the 13th fans are real little crybabies about their monster. They don't like people talking bad about their movies. And, so, and, and, my, and here's the thing. I I spent a lot of time the first episode. I would say mostly because of you, keep continuing to bring it up, talking about how I felt the first film was a ripoff of Halloween and several other films. Honestly, for me, that was a point that I I intended to bring up in passing and move on to actually discussing the movie. 
I feel like if we do this right now, we're going to sit and talk about this for 40 minutes, and I'm just going to crap on the continuity of these movies, which is terrible. The continuity of these movies is ridiculous. doesn't make sense. It's terrible. I don't want to talk about that. I'd rather talk about all the cool stuff in the movie. <laughs> no, and we can, but we're, we're not talking about the whole series right this minute. I mean, that's for our fifth installment. But for right now, okay, we're talking so, about... The- so Jason wakes up in the bottom of the lake when he sees his mom getting murdered. Is that what you're suggesting? Well, okay. Kind of. I mean, I'm not suggesting that he was lying on the bottom and then somehow he was alerted to her, you know, her peril and her beheading. I'm just saying that his his spirit, his ghostly, because remember, when people die, at least in horror movies, when people die in a way that is unjust, they haunt and they stick around. And okay. I think that his spirit. That's very true. His spirit came back and and went and. uh I guess, uh, reinfested his non-decayed body. Yeah. And see, I know doc's trying to mock me right there, (laughs) but we are talking about a supernatural film. And so it's like, whatever, you know, I don't. Okay. So he comes back to life and in the body of a 12 year old. And then two months later across the country, he's a fully grown man. (laughs) No, 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 no. Hold on. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's not what I said. I, I said it was a dream. I agreed that it was a dream sequence. Okay, I think I think that he haunted her, or he, like he but got his to physical her. Physical body continued to grow after his death. Is that what you're saying? Well, whatever, whatever way, and this is never really addressed, right? <laughs> well, whatever he died way, as a child. He died as a that's child. That's true. But whatever way he inhabited a uh, you know a a corporeal form once again. Whatever way he inhabited that once again, mm-hmm. he resumed. In his, in his death, his body continued to grow to the size of a full-size man. Well, I'm not saying it was his initial body necessarily that, that he died in. I mean, I, I realize that there's a there's a leap here. You know, well, there's, there's there's more leaps to come. So he <laughs> it, so he he in his somehow his body is preserved after his death in the state of a 12 year old boy. He comes back to life two months later. He's the size of a full-grown man. He gets on a bus with a decapitated head of his mother, travels to the other side of the country. <laughs> Is this correct so far? No, no, you're, you're <laughs> no, you're what you're doing. He shows up in San Francisco with his mom's head. Is this right? What you're doing he is finds morally addre- wrong. He finds the home address of a girl he's never met. Is this right? There's a prank. There's a Does prank. Does he have call. the internet? Or how is he looking up her address? By the way, is this like? Did he go to the library and get um some like <laughs> phone books? No. While, while he was watching, while he was watching his mother being beheaded, he also took a peek in her purse. You're yeah, being well, so dismissive. Maybe when he pulled her underwater, he checked her identification <laughs> for her home address. Well, that's the thing. Okay, so Josh, what you're telling me is these ghosts who haunt people, they always have to go to like the the Library of Congress, or they have to go to the courthouse and find out where so the you're family saying moved a to. Ghost. He's not. Phys- he's not a physical being at all. I said that when when he when he drowned as a child. He he was haunting that area because it was a wrongful death. He shouldn't have died. I like that. I like that. But now what? I, then what? That's where I'm going. I, I already said all this. And so he <laughs> he's haunting the lake, the Camp Crystal Lake area. And when he sees when he sees the awful thing that happens to his mother, then 
for whatever reason, that ignites him. Now, I can't explain. I don't really have a theory on where he picked up a body to inhabit. Okay? It's a, okay, hor- well, it's a horror movie. Else. Let's, let's throw something else in there, Jay, is that <laughs> will you not agree that when most spirits haunt an area, they don't realize they're dead? You're saying Jason somehow realized he was dead and did something about it. I will not agree with what you said there because I think sometimes they do realize they're dead. Uh, and you get based to San that Francisco. on okay, yeah, okay. <laughs> how did he get to San Francisco? What? How did how, the same way Michael Myers got across the country to Have California? Have you seen his face? Michael Myers steals cars and drives them. Jason Voorhees has a deformed face, or it's so? covered up with a bag. So how is he getting across? Is he getting on an airplane? I know this is pre nine 11, but is he boarding a flight? So are you, are you telling me that when Michael Myers got that car, he went into like Hertz rental car and showed his license and all no, that stuff. He, no, he stole it. He stole he the car. Them. Ta-da. Stole there you the- go. So Jason stole so it. Jason stole the bus and then let a driver drive. Cause so he gets off the bus. Doesn't he? Why do you say it's a bus? Why couldn't it be a pickup truck? For example, <laughs> Okay, what about this? Here's my point. This is what I agree with Bill Shetty on. You're not supposed to think about any of this stuff in this movie because the filmmakers did not give you sufficient text to be able to deal with any of these questions. Right. And so you're just supposed to enjoy that it's a fun, goofy slasher movie. I don't want I don't want that to be the case, but that's just the reality. But there's see- not there's nothing there to work with. No, but see, I, I I have. I'm an example of a person who has worked with it, and and, and but you don't I, have answers for any of it. I just, yeah, except I, except I, for I how except for except for how he came back to life. That you don't have an answer. I for. answered everything you guys asked me. You said you couldn't. You said you couldn't figure out where what body he got. Well, suffice it to say, he he re inhabits a body. I don't know where he got it from. But he re-inhabits this, this powerful body. Well, it's body. not just re-inhabiting anybody. It's his body. We know that by the deformed face. Well, and it's older. And I don't know why it's older or how it's older. I mean, I'm not going to explain the science behind this supernatural <laughs> event. So, so the ghost of the deformed little boy who died in the lake <laughs> has basically been able to conquer death he's done it in a way that nobody has ever before well apparently because this guy cannot be killed and if he is killed he still comes back so you know go figure i'm just saying i don't know i don't know why you guys are like um straining over a gnat and yet you swallow a camel and other instances i don't even want to talk about this because it's so ludicrous that's my point i'm saying let's forget Let's forget about it and talk about straining it. Over, straining over a gnat. Okay, if this is a gnat, tell me a camel. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying, I, I don't have any problem with the fact that monsters, they get to their prey. You know, whether, whether they're slow and shambling or they're fast, they still get to their victim. And, and, that, and, that's, that and that's what he's done. Like, you know, he, he gets to Alice in the dream sequence, but then he actually gets to her in the beginning of this film. And, you know, and yeah, I'm sitting here, I'm being very, you know, I'm, I'm just doing it sort of for the sake of the discussion. I mean, I, right. when I first saw this movie, I didn't give it any thought either. <laughs> you know, I just kind of went along with it and I was like, oh, cool. He's, you know, but Jason's back. To, and Jay's trying to claim that he has given it thought. That's the okay. I have. I mean, <laughs> you know, to the extent I, I've thought 
of it to the point where I feel okay about it. You know what I mean? I feel okay about it just by by accepting the fact that, as you say, monsters find their prey, and obviously the actual story doesn't make any sense. Right. I'll be honest with you, Jay. I I, I think the screenwriter and 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 uh, Steve Miner would be staring, scratching their head, and not want want to know what the hell you're talking about. <laughs> I don't, I don't think I don't think I don't think they would would have said I, I I didn't they didn't put that much thought into it. It was just Paramount said we need a sequel. We don't have our, our original killer, but we do have this other area that we could possibly explore. Let's just go there and yeah. let's not worry about let's not worry about it making sense because the whole idea is we're trying to put butts in seats. And I think the the explanation they came up with was he was always alive. He never died. He was in the woods. He has this little shack that he lives in. We're we're supposed to understand that this is Jason's home. Yeah, I know that. I flatly, I I hate that. I hate thinking that he never died because if that happens, then that totally undercuts the power and the motivation of the first film. Yeah, maybe maybe which his mom. Why, <laughs> which maybe, is why I say I love it as a standalone film, but with the franchise, it doesn't work as well. Right. Well, I mean, uh, that's why I just I I don't accept that. I would rather see him as a supernatural being from the onset here. And then I can go along with that because it's like all kinds of supernatural stuff that you can't explain. I mean, it it does make more sense that the spirit of a young boy who drowned would re-inhabit his body that didn't decay and then age rapidly in two months. Then live in the in the woods, <laughs> hidden away for twenty years. All I'm saying is that it that that explanation would ruin the first film for me because the power of the first film is that mother's revenge, and if now, the revenge was in saying, vain. Now, what are you saying that she would have known he was out there? I don't understand your question. You're does saying the mom that, know he's alive? In how the does the mom? Maybe the mother didn't know he was alive. Well, yeah, I, I know, I know that. So she could have been. So why? So she would still be seeking revenge. She, she could have been misinformed, dead. but see, and I know this is very hard to articulate because it is so abstract. But there wouldn't be truth in her quest of revenge, even if she wasn't aware of it. There wouldn't be truth that she's really well. She's off she her genuinely off. lost her son. You know what I mean? It's like thinking she lost her son is different from actually losing her son. Not to her. I know, but to me, the viewer, that's what I'm telling you. <laughs> I don't know why you beat up. It would, on this it film would be so tragic much. to think. It, it would be tragic to. It would be tragic to think that she killed all those teens for nothing. Yeah, I think I think Friday Thirteenth is a really fun standalone movie. I think Friday Thirteenth Part Two is a really fun standalone movie. I think if you try to connect these two films to the rest of the franchise, you're just either gonna have a massive headache or be living delusionally like you are right now <laughs> okay. and ignoring massive swaths of text from both film. It's interesting. So when you think about this film, <laughs> which we obviously have done some, you know, I don't know. I, I am the guy who I love my horror to be set in reality. I love it to be something that could actually happen or that has happened or that could happen. That's my favorite kind of thing. But I just, okay, typically, Typically, but I'm bringing this up for a reason, which is I think that the supernatural nature of of this family, of this Voorhees family that we have in this franchise, it's entertaining enough. I think it skates the line enough with like, 
you know, what we come to know about ghosts and hauntings and things. I, I'm not still dwelling in this, even though it seems like I am. I'm trying to transition out of this. <laughs> but but I think that it, it works well enough because it's almost like a blend of monsters. It's like you got this slasher thing and then you've got this, you know, revenge flick. You've got this, um, I see it as a haunting. I mean, there are several horror components built into this, and I think that's why it's an effective franchise for me, at least. Yeah, I, I, I don't disagree, especially as you get later into the series. You know, you, you start to get other elements from other other horror movies in there. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it still somehow manages to sort of, you know, bring them under the Friday the 13th fold. Mm-hmm. You know, even when you get to like part seven and you start dealing with other characters who uh, who sort of extend out to other sort of horror movies, you know, and and, uh, Mm. yeah, I I don't disagree. Yeah. So, I mean, I think what this comes down to, though, is really how scary this film is. I mean, how effective is it? Like if we set aside and I think we can all admit that, yeah, if you try to look at it, it you know, there are ridiculous leaps that it makes. And in, in other words, let's ignore how Jason Voorhees got there. Let's just accept that he's there and deal with it. Is that right. what you're saying? And right? what I'm yeah. saying is, is it a scary film? Oh, yes. I, I think it is. I know it scared me mm-hmm. uh, first time I saw it. And and there are definitely moments in the movie that uh, that, that make you jump, especially when, when you get towards the end. Yeah. Yeah. See, I and, and just also in, just also in, it's just also sort of sort of creepy, too. You know, it's got that factor. I mean, it's yeah, a lot of these movies, people are like, OK, you just get the, the sort of shocks, the, the jump scares and and the guy jumping out. And so but there are there are parts of this movie that are creepy as well and again i'm thinking towards the end you know when when you finally sort of take a look inside this hut or this this shack or whatever it is yeah and Mm -hmm. we can we can talk about that all you want if you want to go into specifics because we're all on total oh that's right because we're we're doing the spoiler thing here you know where when you go in there and you see that little shrine he's got there and Mm -hmm. and you know there's it's just so unsettling you know, because that's that's uh, uh, you're just like, wow, this this guy, it's you know, OK, yes, he's the, the kills and everything like that are, are, are you're, you're jumping, you're scared with that. And then you see something like this shrine that he's got and you're just like, whoa, this is, you know, it, it, it's, it's just unsettling. Mm-hmm. So you had it had both of those, I think, sort of working together in this movie, at least in that scene. Plus, there's just something about the claw end of a hammer that just really <laughs> sends a chill up my spine and yes. and uh, th- to see it used that way i mean every, i mean when you hold the hammer you can't help but look at the end of it and say boy I, i'd hate to have this thing <laughs> lodged into any part of my body because it's it's so <laughs> there's just something about it um and and they have one of those scenes in this movie and i think that was one of the first things one of the things i reacted to one of the uh, so strong like strongly reacted to the first time i saw it. Yeah. I totally agree. Josh, what do you have to say? There's so much I like about this movie. I think what, you know, our conversation up to this point has kind of convinced me further of is I need to be able to separate it from the first film to fully enjoy it. Um, I think I really like the cast of kids in this movie. I think that there were some good ones in the first film. I think even like Kevin Bacon, who doesn't have a lot to say in the first film, he still has so much charisma Mm-hmm. This movie, I think that a lot more of the kids um, have charisma. I really like Mark. I really like Paul. I really like Jenny. I think Amy Steele is the. I know this is a commonly held 
belief, but I, I, she is like the best final girl of any slasher movie in the. And 80s. I have to, I, I have to agree with you. I, I would, I would agree with that. In the eighties, you're saying well, she's so good. I mean, at least, at least in the first several films of the slasher genre, if you take like the first four movies from each of these franchises, I just think she's so good. Um, I like her way better than Alice. Um, I think Jenny is just, I don't know. There's something about Amy Steele as, a, as an actress that I really responded to. Um, ironically, this also has two of the least charismatic people ever. I think um, Scott and Terry uh, played by Kirsten Baker and Russell Todd. They're like two of the most beautiful people to ever live on the planet, but they have zero charisma. <laughs> and so <laughs> it's yes. kind of weird, but, um, but they're, they're both beautiful human beings. Um, I think when it gets to the hut in the woods, it's when it feels more like psycho again to me, it's clearly riffing off yes. psycho. Um, Agreed. And it's, and it's helpful actually to have that movie shorthand because we, we understand Jason's psychology a lot more quickly because we kind of know we're in familiar territory. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that's useful um, as a, as a you know, filmmaker's tool. Um, but uh, like as Doc said, it's also really creepy. I think the imagery in, of this film, of that shack, you know, the shrine we see there is really disturbingly creepy. I think they were very smart to take the mask from the town, the dreaded sundown and kind of, you know, revamp it here. Yes, exactly. And that Love works. It. it works really, really well. I mean, it, it, it's, it's almost a shame that it didn't last another whole movie with yeah. that. You know, I mean that she got the 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 hockey mask, which became the iconic image yeah. of Jason Voorhees. Right. But there really is something about this this burlap sack that, and that's yeah. what that was. It works. I thought that was one of the things that worked so well in the town that dreaded sundown. Yes, um, absolutely. In that movie, and and I think it I think it carries over to this one as well. And I think Jason in this movie is kind of the, has that thinner, wiry frame that's also kind of close. And, and his clothes, too, are obviously reminiscent of kind of the Town of the Dreaded Sundown. I think he just mm-hmm. has kind of a small, scrappy um, frame compared to, you know, where he'll go <laughs> after parts like four and, on, and beyond. Yeah. But yeah. Um, I guess his body continues to grow. Um, but, uh, <laughs> I, but yeah, I, I, I think as a standalone film, I absolutely love this movie. I, I don't think I love it quite as much as the first film. Um, but I do think, um, you know, it stands on its own as like a great 80 slasher. Um, I think, be, I think because I really love the summer camp vibe of the first movie. And that's something a lot of the next few films don't have, you know, and this movie feels a little more country with Jason's clothes. And I don't know, like. It feels a little more scarecrowy to me than than it does summer camp, <laughs> despite the fact that they're I kind of that. you know in this counselor training. Um, but anyway, yeah, I I think as far as a non hockey mask Jason movie, this is about as good as they get. So, what do you rate uh, Friday the Thirteenth Part Two, Wolfman? Well, I don't like it as much as the first film, mm-hmm. um, and I think. Um, you know, if I if I were to take it as standalone, I would I would probably come in just under the first film, like a seven. Um, I rated the first one a seven point five. I think if I do, you know, live with the reality that this is connected in continuity to the first film and within the series, I have to knock down even a little bit more. So I'm going to give it a six out of ten, but I still think it's a strong rental recommendation for me, and um, okay. it's a must see for fans of eighty slashers. All right, yeah. 
I see. Well, yeah, this one and the first one are both, I think, special because because the hockey mask ends up becoming so iconic and that's that that's defining for Jason and so forth and and Jason is the killer and so forth. I think the first film and this second film here are kind of special because this is the only one with the burlap sack, you know, on his yeah. head. And then and then the first film it's not even him, it's his mother. And yeah. so I think that makes those two films kind of extra cool. But yeah, I don't I mean, I like this one a lot. I think this is a great horror movie, especially 80 slasher. I I back you on that totally. I do like it a little bit less than I like the first one. The first one I rated 8.5. And for me, this one is an 8 out of 10. And I say buy it. It's a must-see for sure. What do you give it, Dr. Shock? Well, you see, for me, that <clears throat> the, the first four movies in this series are... And I don't want to get too far. I know we're talking about all the, the other two tonight anyway, but the first four movies in this series for me are just another level above where, what happened with the rest of the series. Now, part of that was the FCC or, the, you know, the um, MPAA getting involved and saying, hey, you got to tone down the violence after, you know, uh, the fourth one. Um, but there's just something about the first four. I can't go under a certain number for any of these movies. I'm actually going to come in. I'm going to be a little bit less than the first movie too, but not by much. I came in at a 9.5 on the first one, and I'm going to give this one actually a nine. I mean, this is one that I can sit, I can take any one of this, the four movies from, from Friday the 13th and sit down and watch them at any given time and just have a blast watching them. Mm. Uh, you know, and we had a lot of fun at the beginning here, sort of trying to, you know, going back and forth of trying to explain it. <laughs> but you know what, if you just sit back, if you basically do the whole check your brain at the door thing and don't worry about explaining it because they didn't worry about it when they put the movie together, then it's a fun movie. And yeah, I'm going to give it a nine and it's, it's, it's a buy for me. All right. So that's there's a- two things I wanted to discuss about this that we didn't quite get to. Okay, go for it. Um, they're just random, so I hope they're not too random. No, but do it. Do it. There's the character of Mark in the wheelchair. Yes. Is he only in a wheelchair so that they can push him down that flight of stairs? Is that the only? Am I? I believe that that was reverse engineered to think how can we push someone down two flights of stairs in a wheelchair, and that's why he's in that in that wheelchair. I think it harkens back to Franklin and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre because, you know, he was a a wheelchair character as well. And when you have Leatherface, and this is, um, we'll say spoilers for the original, (laughs) the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. When you have Leatherface take out Franklin, who's in a wheelchair, meaning he can't get up and run away or anything, but he just gets a chainsaw right into his chest. um, That told us that Leatherface was brutal. And I, and I think I think that they were trying to do some kind of riff on that where they make Jason equivalent in his brutality where they're like, you know, he doesn't care <laughs> like what, what predicament the victims find themselves in. He's just yeah. he's just ruthless. And so what do you say, Dr. Shock? I think it's I mean, uh, we do know, obviously, from Pez that they do li- they do borrow things from other horror movies. And, yeah, I could say. Uh, I could see where you might think that I, I, I could see, you know, and I think that you, you could very well be correct about that. You know, I, I can't say for sure, but, um, 
I, and I, I tend to agree with Josh. They might have just done that, for, you know, because someone might have said, hey, it might be cool to have a character in a wheelchair, you know, going down some stairs. It here. almost feels like to me like they found the location and they were like, what can we hey, do? Yeah, we could do something with this here. Yeah. Yeah, that's possible. But I mean, it, it does go back. I mean, you know, it, it, it just from the fact that you have a character in a wheelchair, you're right, Jay. Uh, Jay, it does go back to Texas Chainsaw Massacre. But there might have, that might be something that's more like. I don't know that they would. I don't know that they were necessarily thinking of that, but they may have been. I can't say for sure. Yeah, I liked it. Um, I think oh, yeah. one of my other favorite kills in the movie. Again, we haven't really talked about, but if this was borrowed from Texas Chainsaw Massacre, there's one that's um, borrowed from Mario Bava as well. The uh, kind of the famous spear impaling yes. on the bed. Mm-hmm. Um, that's kind of shot for shot from Twitch of the Death Nerve. Um, but they yes. actually intended to go further with it. But the MPAA, yeah, again, kind of cut out some of the kind of crucial scenes that and crucial shots that would have taken it a step above Twitch of the Death Nerve. But as it plays out, it's basically a shot for shot remake. Unfortunately. Kill. And then and you get um, uh, there's also a pretty cool machete to the face that looks pretty. I mean, it's one of the better non Tom Savini effects, I think. Yeah. And that's Mark before he goes down the stairs. Right. Yeah, exactly. That actor I was reading and I'm looking, I was looking through the Camp Crystal Lakes book. Um, that actor actually died uh, of AIDS in 1995 at uh, the age of 41. The actor who played um, Mark. Yeah, he was openly gay at the time. I remember some of the actresses talking about or the actress that's in the scene with him talking about how she kind of tried to hit on him and stuff. And it wasn't right. going to happen. That's that's sad. I did not know that. Yeah, and it was uh, age-related complications. He was 42 years old. Uh, one of the cast members talks about how they ran into him like shortly before, and he was actually very angry about it because he felt like he had a lot more to do. He was getting into photography, and uh, yeah, so it is kind of a sad story. Uh, but again, sort of reminiscent of the times. I mean, that was the mid-'80s. That's, um, you know, that that was the plague of the 80s, so to speak. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A couple more things. Is this our first um, kind of nonsensical skinny dip scene that we of many that will later come in the Friday the 13th films? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, no mystery about that. I don't think they were they were uh, borrowing that from any other horror film, Jay. I think they just sort of said, hey, we got to get some <laughs> unmotivated. We got to get, get these. Yeah, we got to get these girls out of their clothes. Other uh, than by casting. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and, um, and then the last thing I wanted to ask you guys about is the the ending. It has again kind of that surprise ending sequence that, that's you know from the first film that's kind of mirrored here. Um, that becomes a thing for the Friday films. Uh, what mm-hmm. did you guys think of the the big ending scare? See it again. It it worked for me the first time I saw this. Oh, so I think the, I think the window. Right. Yeah, the window right. scene. Yeah, it, it, it worked for me. It scared the hell out of me the first time I saw it. And, you know, it's funny because I, I remember I was watching these one Halloween afternoon years ago. And um, it was around the time I had this operation. And I had to, you know, my wife was driving me back and forth to uh, to um, the hospital because they had to, like, redress the wounds and everything. And this one day she wasn't able to do it. So my mother had come up um, and she was going to take me. She happened to walk in <laughs> towards the end of Friday the Thirteenth. She's was she she actually sat and watched everything from standing in the in that in his little shack all the way up to the end. <laughs> oh man! Um, and knowing nothing about what happened before that, 
she basically got when it got to the point of through the window. She's like, please turn this off right now. Let's go. <laughs> so it, I know it worked on her too. And she didn't even know anything about the movie by that point. But anyway, um, yeah, it, it's effective. And um, I, 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 you know, even sometimes, even when you know those type of things are coming, you know, and that's when a, when a horror movie really, you know, it really got you is it gets you more than once. And that ending scene from this one actually got me more than once. And yeah, this, uh, maybe there was a little time in between the first time I saw it. It's almost like that scene in The Thing where he's testing the blood. <laughs> yeah. It's still up to like I, there was at least a half dozen times I saw that movie. I still jumped every time that, that yeah. damn dish, something jumped out of that <laughs> dish, you know? Right. It's impossible not to. Yeah, and that, that's sort of how I was with the end of this movie. For, for, for It got me more than once, and that's when you know it really, really works well. Yeah, I would call it, I would call it among probably the top, I don't know if I'd go top 10, maybe top 25 greatest jump scares in horror. I, I really, that one, that one got me so big the first time I mm -hmm. saw it. Yeah, it's very effective. And you got to look at the end of the first one too. I mean, that's got to be up there as well, I would think. Oh yeah. Yeah, it's in there as well. Yeah, I'm with you. Anything else, Josh, on that one? I mean, there are a couple things we could talk about as we transition into the next film. Um, I think it's interesting that this is, movie takes place in the future. So the first film takes place in 1979, um, comes out in 1980. This film comes out in 1981, takes place in 1984. Mm -hmm. And it takes the films until part four to kind of catch up the continuity between uh, the present day and the time the films are being made, which I think is kind of interesting. And it's, it's really funny that you mentioned that because you wondered how much the, the filmmakers thought of that. Like, I know when you go back to the mummy series, um, uh, the, the black, old black and white mummy series, by the time they got to the final movie, and I can't remember which one that is. I don't know if it was curse or hey, the mummy's hand or whatever it was, but by the, by the way they were carrying things forward, like, Oh, 20 years from here and 10 years from there. Um, this movie that was made in the 1940s was taking place in the mid 1990s. <laughs> I know funny. that there were for sure times they weren't thinking about it in this series because you have in part four, you know, the guy who's looking for his Sandra, his sister who dies in part two. And you get the sense that, you know, his sister died years ago when in the continuity of the films, it was like three days earlier. Right. So, yeah. I mean, I, there are some kind of weird <laughs> moments like that. Um, so, Jason, just to heart back on that sore point, if we could. Um, so this movie ends. So Jason comes out of the water in part one. His hair, his hair is shorn. He's bald. At the end of this movie, he's got long hair and a kind of a scruffy beard. At the, the next day, which is where part three begins, he's got his head shaved again. Is this correct? And then he just shaves it from then on, or is his hair perpetually shaved? Mm. What do you say, Dave? Oh, I don't know. You're the expert on this one. Uh, I'll defer to you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you wonder about the continuity department, what they were thinking. I mean, what were they going for? Were they like, okay, well, he'll, he'll look scarier if we do this. Well, let's try him like this. I mean, it's like... Only uh, redesigned his face every movie, too. Yes. I mean, that's the kinds of things that I don't get. Why do they, why do, they do that? Why wouldn't they stick with the same design? Well, I think yeah. I, I have a theory on that, and I think that it has to do with uh, changing it up so people don't become accustomed to what it is. I think they were always trying to shock us and surprise us. Whereas, you know, it's just like once he looks the same, you get used to it and it's not scary anymore. So I think I that's don't, I don't know always. if they're shocking and surprising us with a haircut. 
Well, I'm just saying <laughs> that they were always trying different things. That's my point. You know, okay. I, I think that they were just trying to. And, and I will give you that. And especially when it got, to, especially when it counted, they, they really tried different things when it came to like the kill scenes in these movies. Yeah. You know, that's what... trying new and exciting things to shock the audience, guys. <laughs> Friday the 13th, part three in three dimensions. Yes. Yeah. New dimension of terror. <laughs> And that became that became something that would that happened more frequently. I mean, I remember Jaws three was in three D, and I actually paid to see that turd uh, in three D in the theater. You mean the Sea World commercial? Yes, yes, the Sea World Sea World commercial uh, of Jaws three. You know, man, that is a Sea World infomercial. Okay, well let's yeah. let's do it then. Let's move into our feature review of Friday the Thirteenth. Part 3 from 1982. Friday the 13th, Part 3, in 3D. Jason, you can't fight him. You can't stop him. And now, you can't even keep him on the screen. Friday, the 13th, part three, in 3D. A new dimension in terror. Now, when it comes to killing in Jason's woods, Jason will come to you. All right, this is going back. This is the synopsis I did for my write-up, which posted on February 5th, 2011. Nice. Uh, on the blog, so that was m- number 183. Um, in the uh, 2500. Uh, I put Friday the 13th Part 3 picks up a day after the events of Part 2 with Jason still on the prowl in the Crystal Lake area. Not realizing danger, a group of young people take a weekend trip to a cabin in the woods. Oddly enough, one of the group named Chris, played by Dana Kimmel, actually survived an encounter with Jason just a few years earlier and is still haunted by the memory of it. Unfortunately, she's about to come face to face with her darkest fears once again. So she had survived that a few years earlier. That would have happened a few a few years before part two as well. It would have it would have had to yes because yeah. um, uh, because this this part three picks up like a day like there's the ambulances are still wandering you know in the area from what happened yeah uh, in and part it, two and it was intended to be a rape initially but I I was told that the actress. Uh, refused to kind of play the scene that way. That Jason was supposed to rape her initially. Oh, interesting. Wow. Interesting. But uh, yeah, Dana Kimmel didn't didn't want to play it like that. And that I, I, and by the way, that would be insane because of you know it's almost like the nature of his character is to execute justice against the sexually uh, promiscuous or whatever. I mean, the the people yeah. who are having sex instead of you know, attending to the responsibilities. I mean, he is a chastity belt of sorts. And so if you had him raping that, that would be really stupid and it would undercut the monster that yeah. he is. Yeah. And, and not to jump too far ahead, but in part four, um, I know just kind of, this is, since we're talking about this topic, um, I know the screenwriter wanted to have a scene at the end where Jason, um, grabs the the lady's breast and um joseph zito 
rightly said, no, uh, you're not doing that because, you know, this is about him. Kind of just reiterated some of those points you were making, Jason. Yeah. And, and also about his childlikeness and about how his goal is to kill. And, you know, that you, just, you don't want him to learn that there are other things he could be doing. Right. Right. One and I just uh, real quick before we get too deep into this, one thing I want to point out, just so as as a nod to uh, uh, my co-host uh, Greg Amorgas on Land of the Creeps. One thing I remember him bringing up about this movie, it's this one, and there's another film later on in the series that has has similar scenes. Um, you get uh, the, the the shop owner and his wife at the beginning of this. You know, you get Harold and Edna. Um, there's a scene where Harold is out in the uh, well, he's in the outhouse and he's taking care of business. Uh, you know, sitting there having a, having a good old time until he hears something. And then he just sort of uh, then he gets out of there as quick as he can. I, it's always bothered Greg Amortis that he's never wiped. <laughs> that he just stands up, pulls up his pants and runs out of there. Well, you know, if you're in a, that kind of a sketchy situation, you got to you got to do what you got to do to survive. But uh, uh, I guess I guess so. I don't know if he thought it was a matter of survival at that point or not. But <laughs> yeah, you know, he 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 he, uh, he didn't take those extra couple minutes yeah. to make sure he was nice and clean down there. I uh, for me, it bothers me more that he looks like Tommy Chong because I keep I, I think it's Tommy <laughs> Chong every time I put the movie. In. <laughs> I see. Although I gotta say, Edna's death was very appropriate. I was I was quite happy to see her get stabbed in the mouth. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, well, the yeah, the knitting needle. Yeah, what, and that's right. this is this is probably where you're getting to what you're talking about, Jason. Where you start rooting for the killer. I don't think anybody wanted to see Edna get out of there alive. No. Yeah, I mean that that also becomes another, I guess, favorite pastime of slasher films is you. You uh, zero in on the characters that you despise, and you can't wait until their day comes, and mm-hmm. <laughs> and you always want it to be gruesome. And they always give you one. They always give you one or two in the movies. That, <laughs> that there's always one or two in these movies that you're not going to like, and you're just kind of okay. Come on, let's see that. I mean, yeah. you, you get you get to part. Well, we're not doing part five. That's that's going to be the next discussion. But anyway. Well, let's talk about the 3D aspect then, since we started on that a little bit. This is, 3D is, it's hard to know how to feel about it sometimes, because it's like, on one hand, we know that in the history of the cinema, especially in the 50s, when television started just taking over the world, and, uh, you know, the box office numbers were waning, and the motion picture industry was threatened by the the small screen, the little box. Mm-hmm. Um, they started doing all these, you know, gimmicky weird things. And so we we got 3D and it has tried, tried to resurface a couple of times. And just like anything else in the cinema, I would be okay with 3D if it were implemented at the service of the story. It's just like action scenes and action movies. It's like, you know, if it's Michael Bay, Transformers movies, they just throw in these action set pieces and it really has nothing to do with the story. Therefore, it's boring. But, and I've said this example before, you know, in Die Hard with Bruce Willis, you know, that's a great action film because those are organic to what's happening in the plot. Well, same thing with 3D. And unfortunately, but I mean, some people think this is very like nostalgic or something, but 
you know, in, in, in films like this, you got them throwing a lot of things or poking a lot of things at the camera, you know, yeah. and, and, and it just it doesn't work quite as well. It, it doesn't. And I agree with you. I, I think if you even go back to things like um, House of Wax, that was a 3D movie. Yes. Is that, I think it's is that the one with the yo-yo. Is yes. there a guy with a yo-yo? He's like exactly. Like, uh, this is sort of strange. I guess insert scene with this with this Barker or this this circus performer or something or whatever he is, and he's like tossing a yo-yo into the screen. <laughs> and you get that in this movie. And I remember I was there for the eighties when it when it was coming back. You had things like um, Space Hunter Adventures in the Forbidden Zone. Me and my friends paid to see that in three D. A sci-fi movie. We couldn't wait to see it. And there's a scene at the beginning where a ship is going across space. And we saw it come. You know, it was the old red, blue, red, green, whatever glasses they were. We saw the ship coming out of the screen. And it was actually like in the middle of the theater. We were blown away by that. We said, my God, that's incredible. It was the last cool thing about the 3D. (laughs) The last half hour of that movie, we all watched it fuzzy because we got such bad (laughs) headaches. From those glasses. and But what they did in that movie was, you know how you're talking about things coming out? They were doing laser shots at you. That is so fast. How the hell can you even see that? <laughs> They're like right. shooting lasers at you out of the screen. And it's going pew, 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 like, like, Star, <laughs> like Star Wars lasers. It's moving too fast. And you get a little bit of that in this movie. You get a little bit of that in every one of these 80 movie, 80s movies where they try this coming out of the screen at you. You know, and it just moves too fast for it to be effective. Was yeah. this the first one to bring it back? Because this is before Jaws 3D. This is before Space Hunter. Yes, I, I, it, that's a good question. I'm not sure. I, I'd have to see if there was another movie. I know that, was it uh, The Adventures of Jared Sind? I don't. I think that might have been in 3D, but I don't know when that one was. That I get a feeling that was after, too. That might have been around the whole Krull Space Hunter time period, too. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> not that Krull was 3D. Right. Well, it wasn't 3D, but that was still, you know. Yeah. <laughs> See, now, the, what was it of the best in 3D? First off, animation, I think current animation does it really well. Yes. But it's when they add to the depth. They don't do the coming out of the screen at you. They just, they, they make it, they add depth to it. Yeah. I don't and the mind, background I don't is in the background. coming out of the screen. Can I be the first or only one here to say I like it when it's in your face coming out of the screen if – it, again, as Jason said, it feels organic to the story. Now they try to make it feel organic by you get like 30 seconds of yo-yo toward the frame and then we cut to see, oh, he's doing that in the girl's face. And right. so, haha, that's funny. But like, I feel, I don't know. <laughs> I, I like, um, I like the 3D that's flying out at you now. You know, uh, one of my favorite movies when I was a kid was like Disneyland's Captain EO with Michael Jackson. Oh yeah. I thought that was a great use of 3d and there's a lot of that stuff that's kind of coming out at you. And I I think that's fun personally. I will say most of it doesn't work in this movie, but I would say that the half that does work, I feel like would work even if it wasn't in 3d because it's organic. It's, I don't know if it's organic is the right word, but it's just a more interesting shot composition. So, like, I yeah. think what the 3D did is it forced them to think about the shot composition a lot more than they had previously. And so they come up with some really interesting framings, even though, yeah, I, about half the time it's kind of doesn't pay off in the way you would hope because it's, it's, it's just, kind of cheesy. If you watch if you watch these 80s 3D movies now without the 3D, obviously you can see 
exactly what they were trying to do with all of those, you know, with everything coming out of the screen. I see what you're saying, Josh. You make a good point that, yes, they do frame things a little more interestingly um, because of that. Uh, but, you know, it doesn't – It. I don't know. It, it, you got to think, is, how's it going to hold up without – I mean, if you're doing a movie like with where you're adding death to it, you could show that in 2D or 3D and you're going to have the same sort of reaction. Um, you know, these sort of movies where things are coming out of the screen. I mean, I remember one of the most painful things I ever saw, and I'm a Three Stooges fan, was they showed a Three Stooges short on TV one time. I've only ever seen it once. That must have been in 3D. I can't tell you how many times they had the camera pointing at Mo and his fingers coming out with the two, you know, to poke him in the eye, coming yeah. straight at the camera. You know, and wow. you watch that now and you're like, oh, my, it's painful. Well, you talk about them being too fast in Space Hunter. They're way too slow in Friday the 13th. Part well, yeah, they're not. <laughs> the, the speed isn't an issue in the Friday, in this movie. It's not like you're talking about like the spear. Um, you know, like, well, there's like, like even that, the scene yeah. of like the, like the vans driving down the road and little kids like holding. I don't know if they're playing stickball or what. Maybe it's a baseball bat, but he's just holding you know, his bat or stick just in the lens frame right. for like a good, you know, three to four seconds, which doesn't sound like a long time, but it's a long time for just to be sitting there for no reason. True. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They, I, they, they just wanted a little bit of spectacle there, but I will give this film credit for one thing. And I think it's either forgotten or overlooked and maybe by younger horror fans. When my bloody Valentine 3d came out, you know, there's that, um, eyeball pop scene, you know, you got a, you got a yeah. really good, a really good eyeball scene in that. And I think, you know, some, some people probably just attributed it and credited it to that. But I think that that was influenced largely by this film, which has an eyeball pop scene. And, you know, I just think that things like that need to be noted and appreciated. So <laughs> I give it props for that. Well, that spear, when Jason shoots the spear, I mean, that that's awesome. I think mm -hmm. that's that's a great shot. I think it looks really cool. Yes. But it does move a little slower, I guess, than you would think. Uh, yeah, you know. but, you know, I mean, well, whatever. It's on a string. I mean, yeah, they can't shoot it actually into the camera, but. Right, right. I don't know. I'm just saying, I think as a concept, it, it looks pretty cool. <laughs> and, <laughs> for some... I and, I, and I liked it, and I kind of liked that that particular kill, to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, me too. Yeah, for sure. So let's talk about the story in this one. I mean, it's pretty similar, right? I mean, once again, we're we're getting to the point where we've got a clear cut objective. I mean, we've got a system of events here with this killer where the story is just yeah, I mean, standard. we've kind of forgotten all about Camp Crystal Lake at this point, though, haven't we? Yeah. Like, at least at part two, they were at the same lake, but they were kind of like at a different camp. This movie, it's like, they're just basically hanging out in a barn for most of the movie. Mm -hmm. I mean, that that's kind of weird to me. I mean, that's a, that's a problem for me, I guess, with the film. Yeah, well, the, the thing that I think is even, because I do give you that, and I'm, I'm with you, because Camp Crystal Lake is part of this this universe and this world and his motivation. I mean, he has an association with that. But the thing that's even weirder is, you know, in, in part two, uh, he was pretty limber and fast. And now he has slowed down and he's like slower moving. He's more along the lines of like Michael Myers in this. He's a lot bigger in this one too. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, um, 
I don't know. I, how do you guys feel about that? Where it's like kills are inevitable and he knows he's going to get you. So he takes his time to get you. Um, I mean, do you guys are, do you guys feel the same way about that as you do about like slow zombies and fast zombies where you think slower is scarier or what? Well, I think if it's done right, I think in the, in the first Halloween films it was done well because even with him just walking you always got the feeling he was going to get to where he wanted to go Mm -hmm. you know and i think that was one of the things and even some of the creepier scenes in that movie are him just standing there looking like looking up in the window or, or looking around the corner or something you know um and i think it works in in that one i don't know what what are you saying maybe they were trying to copy that in part three yeah i mean i think maybe they were um returning back to the the Michael Myers I don't want to call it a formula but just his approach to the inevitable killer the implacable killer the unstoppable killer um and it doesn't matter how f- fast you try to move he's going to take his time and he's going to get you eventually I mean you know Friday the 13th part 2 comes out and you've got this little scrappy wiry Jason who's like a hillbilly with a with a gunny sack on his head, <clears throat> and then and then I say that with all due respect, of course. Then Halloween two comes out, and you know you've got your really kind of plotting Michael Myers in part two. I mean, slower than he is in most of the movies, right? Uh-huh. Uh And then uh-huh. then Friday Thirteenth Part three comes out right after that. So yeah, it does make me wonder if it was a direct influence of Halloween Part two. Yeah, and and yeah. the only reason that's a complaint. Um, well, I don't want to call it a complaint because I think it still works for Jason as well, but I, I like him limber and fast and ferocious. And, you know, after you see him behave a certain way in the previous film, it's just like, you you know, you come to expect that, but maybe, you know, one could argue that's a theory. Maybe they want to change up what we expect about the killer. Just like what we were talking about. They change up his appearance a little bit. Yeah. So we're not having the same expectations all the time. But And again, though, then you get into the continuity problem because this is days later. Yeah. So Jason all of a sudden decided <laughs> to change his look and his technique. He's, he might be really sore after. I mean, he had a pretty rough day. Or, or That's tired. true. That's true. That's true. Yeah. He did end up what he got. He got. He ended up with the machete in the shoulder. And, yeah. Yeah. That would slow yeah, anybody down, point. Dave. I, in fact, yes, it would. But you know, uh, you know, he speeds up quite a bit the day after this in part four. Yeah, <laughs> and right. he had healed and, by then. Yeah, and I think um, that's interesting because you've got big Jason and fast Jason kind of at once in part four. Mm-hmm. I think eventually we kind of split that difference, right? He's not quite as lumbering as he is in three. He's not quite as fast as he is in four, but he does kind of have. A lumbering ferocity for the rest of the series. I, you know, I've, he's still lumbering, but he's also quite fierce. Yeah, more fierce than Michael Myers. Right. Yeah, and and see, I like I like the ferocity because it it also kind of hammers home, you know, what he's about. See, Michael Myers wants to kill, but it's like he's going to get around to it. With Jason, there's like there's a very passionate reason why he's killing. We never, we don't really know exactly why Michael Myers wants to kill people, especially his, you know, his family members. But, but in, with Jason, we know that there's a vendetta at stake here. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and and you know, I mean, uh, of course, I think really the heart of it. I think Josh, you probably nailed it with you know Halloween too, and that's probably why they did this. But I also think that maybe, maybe it was like 
a shorthand attempt at trying to stretch out the terror, you know, to, to try to create and generate more suspense that's going to last a little bit longer by making the inevitable kill scenes take longer to get there. Yeah, I think that I really like Jason in this movie, actually. My problem kind of, you know, just reiterating is I think of Jason, and maybe incorrectly, I think of Jason as a guy who's protecting his territory yes. for, the, for a lot of these movies. And, and so to just have him be preoccupied with his barn sucks a lot of the interest out of it for me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, despite they get, they get a lot of good use out of the barn. But, right, uh, especially in the final battle sequence. Yeah. That's pretty strong. But yeah, I, I agree with what you just said, and I think that's true. And, and there are other distracting elements, too, like um, like these gang members in this. It's like <laughs> they are so like stereotypical and cliche. I love them. I, <laughs> I mean, I, I... Fox is a true fox. She's, a, she's yeah. amazing. <laughs> yeah, but the guy, the 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 guy who barks, <laughs> he is so funny. I don't know, they're hilarious. They're they're so inconsistent too. Like Fox, when they're at the at the store, is the meanest of all of all of them, right? You know, she's just taunting them with Shell about Shelly's wallet. But then yeah. by the time they get to siphoning the gas, she's like, "Come on, guys." Is this really a good idea? It's like, huh? Yeah. Are you the one that was just the bully at the gas at the gas station? <laughs> they, they're 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 weird characters, but I think they're I honestly think they're fun, and you know, I like I like a good punk rock biker gang. I like them, but I wish that their um, I guess their costume design wasn't so on the nose. That's cool. With what? <laughs> yeah, this is the era of the village people, Jay. Yeah, I know, but I'm. Yeah, this is 1981. People were dressing. I mean, yeah. I mean, this is that's legit, man. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they're a little done up. Like they they have their their clothing budgets quite large for a young poor biker gang. But I think that I like their war. <laughs> I I really like their wardrobe actually. That's funny. But that's my that's my background. You know, I I, I come from kind of the punk rock background. But you I, are a punk rocker. I dig it, man. <laughs> You did. That's, that's, that's not punk at all. What I just said, but right. I, I do think about. <laughs> even another character in this one that that's sort of uh, uh, almost like a, uh, you know, like if, you, if you're thinking of like a like a musical uh, uh, accompaniment or something, it's like a, it's like a, a wrong note is Shelley. Mm-hmm. You know, they throw him in there. He's not the typical Friday the Thirteenth kid no. up to this point. No, and I and I kind of I do kind of like that about him. I kind of like that they tried to throw a character like that into the mix. He's got sort of the Franklin effect, if you think about it. <laughs> yeah, you know where he's he's kind of annoying, <laughs> and one of the ones where you get the feeling okay, where he's just sort of there. And it's interesting because that, that character. I, I'm I'm looking in the uh, Crystal Lake memories here, and and they're talking with this guy, and I'd heard this story before. Uh, you know, he was saying that at the time, you know, he wasn't working. He was he was a struggling actor and he was actually doing um, uh, he was at the time uh, volunteer, I guess, with a research company. He was handing out he says he was handing out movie tickets to a screening of The Road Warrior. <laughs> yes. And he was standing on the corner and two people came up to him and who were associated with this movie. And they said, are you an actor? We wrote, you know, we got this movie Friday the 13th, part three. You'd be perfect for it. He said they looked at each other and he said, that's Shelley. Uh, he said he was even he even ended up wearing what he was wearing at that time in the movie. Yeah, 
Yeah, I've heard that. That's awesome. I love little stories like that. Shelly is a continuity problem in and of himself. Like (laughs) he's got this tiny little briefcase and she's like, what's in there? He's like, my whole world. And then it turns out like, yeah, no kidding. Like there's a wetsuit, like a spear, a hockey mask, like several other masks, a knife, juggling balls. He's all got squished into this tiny briefcase. I, you know, I have to admit that never really occurred to me before, but that's a really funny, Josh. I love that. That is pretty good. Yeah, I, I know. I don't think I've noticed that either, to be honest with you. That's pretty cool. Well done. I like that a lot. <laughs> I, I don't think I thought of that. I, I, I don't have anything original to say, but I can't quote the source for that joke. Well, it's still pretty <laughs> awesome. Okay, so in this movie, here's one thing. I do love this movie, and, and I can't even... I genuinely love it a lot, but I I just want to be try to be objective as possible here. It's almost like you can start with this film and you can start seeing where the characters become they become less genuine as characters. Or caricatures. They're caricatures. Yeah. You know, they're, they're, they're very the stoner. The the stoner, the jock, the uh, yeah, you know. These generic placeholder archetypal, like you know, very broad strokes of just thin thin characters and you know I, I think what happens the problem with that is yeah it's fun on one level because it's like set up the bowling pins and let our killer knock them down you know and it's like yeah that's fun but if you're attached to them if you have some way to invest in them and you know film critics say this all the time about horror movies so I know I'm not saying anything new but it's just that this series it starts to lose a little bit of that attachment to its characters when they start getting more generic. I mean, do, do you guys feel that way with this particular installment? I, I think with this installment, yeah, because when you get like with the with the with the two druggies, they go along. You know, yeah. they're just always getting high. Yeah. Um. Uh, like you know, I, and, and, and even exactly. You know, and then you have like even uh, like literally Shelley Tommy to a Chung. degree. <laughs> yeah, <Chong. laughs> yeah. Um, and then you get the at the beginning you get edna you know the 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 annoying wife who everyone just wants to say oh come on jason where are you please right. hurry up you yeah. know um i you do definitely see it more in this movie than you did in the first two and i think maybe even a little more than you see in the fourth to be honest with you oh i think so i think the fourth has the best characters in my opinion it yeah. does have really good the characters truth. yeah and so, like, yeah, there's there's a little bit of um, lack of humanity in this. And uh, I mean, they try, and it's it's funny because the ones who they do give a little bit of depth to are usually the the ones that are left at the very end. Yeah, you know, so it's not even like it's like okay, let's give the depth to the final girl because she's the one who's going to be around here for a while. Yeah, yeah. They they tried to give Chris and I'm blanking on her boyfriend's name, Rick. They tried to round them out pretty well, and they they tried to develop them as characters. I don't know that I would use the word depth with Shelley, but he's kind of introducing this nerd as, as Dave said, like this new kind of archetype for the franchise. Is that true? No, that's not yeah. true. There there was a nerd in part two as well. Ted Ted was a nerd in part two, but yeah, Ted was, was kind of cool still. Like yeah, he wasn't quite this guy. I mean, this guy, like, no girl's going to hook up with this guy. Yeah. And he knows it. Like, he's yes. he's just really down on himself the whole movie. 
Pretty interesting. Right. Like when he goes up to Vera, you know, or, or the beginning when they're going to pick up Vera from the house. He's like, would you be yourself if you looked like this or whatever? You know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's just sort of a sad sack, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I, I like some of these um, lines you're bringing out here. That's uh, pretty funny. But Shelly's inter- I mean, Shelly's death is one of the cooler ones in the franchise up until this point because... He is such a prankster. He's got the boy that cried wolf thing going. They think he's goofing around when he when he falls in and he's you know he's bleeding. Right. They think it's another one of his little hoaxes. And I think that's kind of fun. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. And also, you have to you got to give Shelly uh, props because without him, we would not have the iconic hockey mask. Absolutely, uh, of course, yeah. And and as everyone knows, that's introduced in this film. And so I think that's one of the big reasons why this film is. I mean, it's well received and it's it's pretty well loved anyway. But that you know, introducing the hockey mask is a big deal. So let's talk about the hockey mask itself. Now that's interesting to me that that they ended up using a hockey mask, and it's pretty standard issue, right? I mean, it's it's not like you know done up to be made scarier than any normal hockey mask, and looks scary to me. It is scary, but the thing is, it's not like pantyhose over the head. Or some kind of weird mask. It's a typical mask that people wear in sporting events. Everybody knows that. But I, what I want to say about it is, it's funny to me that that this ends up being becoming this very scary thing. And it's like, well, hockey players are violent. They, they you know, they fight a lot, and it is kind of a protective thing. They're in, they're in battle, you know, and and he ends up in battle quite a bit. Um, but I, I just wonder about. Do you think that they put very much thought into selecting a hockey mask for him? Or do you think it was just one of those serendipitous things and it ended up sticking? Do you think there was reason behind it? I've heard they were looking for a mask and two of the guys on set, I don't know if they were in the makeup department or what, were big hockey fans. And so it was actually their suggestion to throw a hockey mask on him because they were kind of hockey nuts. Uh I don't know if that matters. I think what's interesting to me is I look at Jason and he's kind of in the army jacket and the hot, I think there's something about the incongruity of like, he's not on the ice, he's in the woods. And I think something about that is, you know, it's kind of that um, oh, nice. I like that young canniness of that kind of situation and that juxtaposition. That's to me what makes it scary. Like this doesn't belong here. Yeah, that's a really good point. And what about the fact that there are holes in a hockey mask? So it's like, you know, you can almost see in there, but not quite. Yeah. I kind of like that. And the fact that it's white in a lot of time, you know, you know, like the Michael Myers mask, by the way. I mean, a lot of times white is a, is associated, like in terms of color, like, you know, the, the bad guys would wear black, good guys yeah. wear white. And then we have killers wearing white masks. Well, like the Michael Myers mask, I think the great thing about the hockey mask as a choice is that, and actually the, you know, Alice, sweet Alice, I'll give you that, is that it has a face while at the same time being a blank slate. So like it's, it's, it's got a nose, it's got eyes, it's got a shape to it, but there's so much room for projection of fear onto it. Right. Not exactly sure what you're seeing. Yes. There's a blankness to that. And that to me, that's scary as well. Yeah. Very true. (laughs) That's a really good point. I don't know if you guys remember in the previous episode when I was reading that quote by Roger Ebert, but you you remember. I do recall it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And he was talking about how he was lamenting how, you know, in movies before, 
you know, you'd have kids who end up spending time and blah, 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 but now they get killed, right? Well, it's interesting because that horror critic that I like, John Kenneth Muir, he wrote something about this that it's funny because I think he is about the same age as Roger Ebert was. I think this is telling. He says, in the old days of Hollywood, the teenagers like Judy Garland and Mickey Rooney would put on a show out back in the old red barn. In movies such as Friday the 13th Part 3, the teenagers go to the barn to die. Now, you get this sense from these critics. I I think this is interesting. Uh, And it's not necessarily lamenting. I think with Roger Ebert it was. Probably not with this guy as a horror critic. But there's a sense in a change of the culture where it's almost like teenage life used to be this carefree thing. But because of the slasher era and the horror genre, it came to be a time to die, a time of, of deadliness. And, and, and since we're talking about the 80s here, and this, might, this is probably stretching a little bit, you guys, I'm pretty sure it is, but these teenagers are punished for their sexual exploration and, and so forth. Loss of innocence. Yeah, loss of innocence. And at this time in the 80s, that's when we had you know, AIDS ramping up and people dying from that. And so it, it makes me wonder if that's part of the reason why we ended up getting, you know, this kind of a narrative. Yeah, I was wondering too. Now, AIDS was a few years away from happening. I remember AIDS really hit. The first time I heard anything about it was 1985 when Rock Hudson came out. Now, I'm yes. not saying it wasn't around then. Same. It just wasn't in the public consciousness. Same. Um, early, in the early 80s. Well, coming out of the late 70s, the late 70s was not a good time. You had – I remember standing and waiting in long lines to get gas because of like the, the oil crisis. Um, I remember the, um, the hostages in Iran – um, you know, and, and it was just not a, a, the four years of Jimmy Carr, he just happened to be, unfortunately become president at a very bad time. Um, you know, and he, 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 there were a lot of issues with the country and it was sort of a, it just wasn't a very happy period. Now, I don't know that that necessarily, I'm thinking if, cause if you're looking for like real life events to sort of come out of that. But I don't know that that lent itself to the slasher, and I think that's what always made the slasher a little bit different in that it became about the fun of the kills, which is what the critics could never understand. You know, mm-hmm. it wasn't so much turning the mirror back on society as it was saying, you know, hey, let's see how creative we can get. Let's let's see if we can hand let's see if we can have the killer hand this guy's leg back to him, you know, and things like that. And it it became it became the fun of that. And that's why I think with the critics, it became to the point where or it got to the point where they weren't so much reviewing the movies. They were saying, how dare you people like these movies? Yeah. Yeah. But what and I agree with everything that you just said there. And I think you make good points. But what do we have to explain this cynical change, I guess, in the, the climate or the culture where teenage life is like, you know, it's no longer this possibilities are endless and I am impervious filmmaking though because as we discussed last time I think we talked about these themes have been around for a long time right I mean you brought up the early biblical films we talked with Cecil B. DeMille Mm -hmm. we talked about kind of the Puritan era and like you know the crucible and all this kind of stuff being punished for your sins is not like a, a new idea I think the reason these movies feel so bleak and the ones that I like less actually 
are the ones that don't do anything between the kills. So, like, I feel like even in part four, there's a lot of character stuff happening. Part three, one of my criticisms with it is there's just not any anything happening really between the kills. Like, like take Fox for instance. You know, we talked about these like the the punk biker gang. Her big lead up to her death scene is one of the most random scenes you'll ever see in a movie. She like walks into a barn. Oh, canteen. Looks at it, sets it down, giggles. Oh. Horse like equipment laughs get like it, it like she's not doing anything. It's like it's just there's not there's not story or character being developed in those moments in between. And so to me that just it leaves you with this kind of bleaker experience because you're not you don't care. Well she got the pitchfork through the throat because she was admiring the horse's equipment, as you said. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry. I couldn't think of that's what that's sad. what Jason was waiting for. He, he was waiting for. He said, "Well, she hasn't done anything wrong yet." Up oh, there she goes, horse don. Yep. <laughs> no, yeah, saddle was what I was referring to. But okay, yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> that's what I figured. But seriously, it's a ridiculous scene. Like if you actually watch that scene, it's so weird. She walks into right. the barn, picks I, up this canteen, <laughs> puts but, it back. Like, what is happening right now? Why am I? This is going on for a really long time. And it's funny because my wife was sitting in the room when I was watching that. And the dialogue is so bad. Like when Chris and I'm blanking on her boyfriend's name again. I don't know why I forget it every time. But when they're off, you know, having their little side conversation in the woods, you know, when they take his um, Volkswagen out, Rick, uh, you know, to go have their little talk. It's like, what are you watching? Like, and there weren't even any, it wasn't one of those times when someone walks in on you watching a horror movie and they're disgusted by, yeah. um, you know, the horror elements. She was more mm-hmm. disgusted by how bad the dialogue was and how like she she's like, is this like a so, like soap opera from the eighties or something? Like <laughs> this is just the or really worse is, bad or dialogue. Worse is, this, is this one of George Lucas's new trilogy? Yeah, yeah. really. Well, I do like the I, I agree with everything you said with the the that is odd and just bizarre. And it's like, man, this is a weak setup for a kill, but I do like how she was pinned to the rafter. I mean, I the I like that kind of power. And I wonder if that's a little, um, you know, nod or if it took some inspiration from Halloween where he, you know, sticks yeah. the guy to the, you know, the with the knife. The kill scenes are cool, but, yeah. then, but then what's in between? Like when Vera dies, right, she's like, there's almost a scene with her and Shelly. And, what mm-hmm. you know, Shelly being one of the more interesting characters, is this girl going to give him the time of day? They don't even, they start a conversation where he's like, would you ever consider? And she just stops him. No. I'm going to go outside and get some air. See you later. I'll be, we'll be, I'll be back later and we can talk like, yeah, don't leave any time to develop anything between these kills. Like, <laughs> I don't know, you know what I mean? Like it, there, it's yeah. just so, oh, I don't know. Hollow. Chris's uh, boyfriend is Rick. Thank you. Yeah. I always forget yeah. Rick. Yeah. Good old Rick. Good old Rick. <laughs> now, one thing I just wanted to throw in here real quick, and again, this is from the Chris Lake memories, and I'm not going to do this all now. I'm not, you know, I just saw this, and this is something I figured you would appreciate, Jay, because okay. I know you you like these sort of things. Yes. This is from the production designer. Okay, his name was Rob Wilson King. Um, and he's talking about the making of the movie. He's like, making this thing was as scary as being in it. Every minute we had something that was weird that wasn't quite right, we were plagued. For a while, we had something terrorizing the set, but we didn't know what it was. The lake was man-made. You'd see footprints in the sand or you just can't imagine what, and lots of snakes. Then things went missing. We felt like the set was haunted. 
Although the ironic thing was that the hockey mask never went missing. I would have imagined that would have been the first thing any ghost would have wanted. (laughs) I love that. So so they never really offer an explanation of, um, you know. Bigfoot. Or, yeah, okay. No, yeah, maybe Bigfoot. Because, yeah, but no. No, he never did. He just said some very bizarre things happened during the making of this movie that they never could explain. Wow. Well, I've always wondered this, and this is way off topic, but I would love to hear the listeners weigh in on this because I think it's arguable that there are instances in horror cinema, filmmaking at least, where we've had things that could be pointed this way. But it makes me wonder sometimes when productions like this have such an weird events happen or like people die yeah. or it just seems plagued. It's like, a, well, the exorcist was one of those that had yes. like a bunch of people involved with it died. Yeah. And I like mean, and oh. the pol- uh, poltergeist of course has a curse named after it. Exactly. And, yeah. and, and so you got this Macbeth type of production and really what you're doing is creating a story about evil. And, and so it makes me wonder yeah. If 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 there is some kind of a there's just a negative energy you think a negative energy that goes along with that like Jason's spirit called back from the netherworld <laughs> the yeah. evil yeah yeah it's just yeah. it's just bizarre I'd love to hear people's thoughts on that but um so the last thing I want to talk about with this film um is we've got this inversion this this bizarre uh you know riff on the original ending of the original film. You know, when because in the original film we had Alice in the boat, and then you got Jason uh, yes. jumping up out, and now we have this very bizarre thing. <laughs> like <laughs> the final girl is again in a rowboat, and this time canoe. This time, yeah, like yeah, it's a canoe exactly. Thank you. Um, then you got Mrs. Voorhees with her head back on her shoulders again who pops up. Yeah. And, and it's it, a double scare because first she sees Jason in the barn, which by the way, that is terrifying that moment. Yeah. yeah. That Super really scary. is. That That's awesome. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. But, but how did you guys, how do you guys feel about that? Well, this is the, this, you know, they, they had been taking things from other movies as we had been talking, you know, but they borrowed this from that movie. This is them finally realizing that they have a place in horror now and they borrowed back from themselves. Hmm. So, but but as far as like you didn't mind it, you didn't resent it, or did you think it was no. brilliant? Or well, I mean, like I, I don't I don't know that I'd go so far as to call it brilliant, but it didn't really it didn't bother me. It didn't you know it doesn't um, bother me because it connects it back to the franchise. But I will also say in the same breath, I'm not sure I get it or what it's trying <laughs> to say. It's like it's like going back to the first one saying, "Hey, we got you once with this. Now look how we're going to get you this time." Yeah, we're going to reverse it. It's, right. it's it's just um, you know I I never really know how I feel about it to be honest like and that sounds so weird and nitpicky or something but it's not like I'm emotionally like <laughs> I don't know I I just I don't know if I like it to be perfectly honest it's just because cause, you know you swallow a lot in this franchise you take a lot and you go with it you suspend your disbelief but it's like especially you. Especially yeah, me. Really. <laughs> I know. You don't, just suspend, you don't just suspend disbelief. You you try to almost become a believer in. in <laughs> I know. And so, you know? and coming from a guy like me who loves my horror set in the real world, you know, I think that it's, it's a real stretch for me. Huh? 
I'm not, I don't knock it down or anything for that. I mean, I think, okay, they're trying to get us again. And, and that's cool. But I just, I think it's worth mentioning. I think it's one of the most notable things about this film that they do that. And maybe they gave some thought into bringing Mrs. Voorhees back at some point. Yeah. I mean, it almost, it would suggest if you follow the pattern, the next film would be her killing again. Right. Because you got to wonder, maybe because she died um, rather suddenly, do you think her spirit was haunting Camp Crystal Lake? <laughs> yeah, you would think. You would think. Anyway, let's move into our ratings and recommendations for Friday the 13th, Part 3 in 3D. What do you give it, Dr. Shock? This one, of the first four, this this is the one that I guess would be the... I enjoy it a lot. I really do like the movie, and I think I, I like a lot of the kill scenes in it. Um, I like the character of Shelly, uh, but yeah, these characters do get a little bit more cartoon-like in this one, um, that they're just there. I mean, some of the actors even said, um, who was it, the guy who played Shelly, even said uh, at one point, you know, that uh, it, it became clear that the performances didn't matter, you know, that it just didn't matter. Um, <laughs> You're like, and... <laughs> And I think you see that in, in this movie. But that said, I still really like it. It's one of the first four in the series. I'm going to go I'm going to go eight point five. I, I just can't go below eight point five for these first four movies. OK, and it's a buy for you. Oh, yeah, it is a buy. OK, I don't know. The, I, but but I tried watching it with those 3D glasses that they gave. And again, I had to take them off. Those those <laughs> 3D glasses from the 80s, those things were the pets. Yeah. Yeah, they're not very good. Uh, I give you that. Yeah, for me, I a lot of people kind of pair this film up with two. You know, they always look at two and three. Um, our friend Bill Shetty does that. He he considers them almost on the same level. For instance, I think and, he likes this one even more, though, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, this is his favorite. This is his favorite of the of the series. Yeah, it is. It is his favorite. He prefers it, but he says they're they're just about equal they're just about the same to him and, yeah. and for me i actually like this one uh better and it's not it's not really the hockey mask element either it's just um i don't know i like i like the kills in this one actually and and i like to have even though he's slower and i like jason to be fierce and ferocious i do like brooker richard brooker and and i i like his physicality and his presence yeah anyways yeah, for me, this one is an 8.5 out of 10, and I say it's it's a buy. So, the, yeah, I, I rate it. It's equally, it's the same rating as I give the first film, so it's 8.5. What do you say, Wolfman? <clears throat> I'm, I'm always surprised that this is people's favorite movie because I think, um, I, I just don't get it. I think there's so much missing from this film, so much heart that's not in this film that the first two films have. Um, and then it doesn't, it's not quite as good as where I feel like the fourth film goes. It's interesting because it's a transitional film. And I think that's, what's most notable about it for me. Um, we get to see Jason look like Jason or at least a more recognizable Jason. I like that. I think, you know, we've talked about, you know, the kills in quotes. And to me, what that means is in the first two films, we have these death sequences, uh, you know, with Tom Savini, who's doing this stuff that's really breakthrough, Groundbreaking work in the field of makeup effects, and I think it's impressive. And you know, in the first film, but um, but it was such a young time for those effects that it, it was really affecting the way they were setting up their shots, 
It was affecting the blocking for the actors. And so there's always a little bit of inauthenticity to those moments because they're just, they just felt a little bit stilted. I think with part three, when we talk about the good kills, I think what I'm, what I think of is it, you forget that you forget that it's an effect. A lot of the time I do. I, to me, it's the first time in the series where it feels like, Oh, this feels like it's happening. Um, and I think it's because the effects have progressed enough that you don't have to kind of slow everything down and stop for that moment to happen. It can happen in kind of a real life movement pacing kind of way, which I think is a, a breakthrough moment for the slasher genre um, and makeup effects. So for that reason, I think it's great. I, you know, and I love the, seeing Jason in the hockey mask. There are a lot of cool things, but I do think what I said about just kind of there being a lot of empty air between those moments is a problem for me. And so um, I have to knock it down quite a bit for that. Uh, I still give it a six. Um, and I would still say it's a strong rental recommendation for me. But of the first the four films, this is by far the weakest, in my, in my opinion. But I noticed that you have that as the same rating as um, two. Yeah, and I guess they just have different weaknesses for me. Um, okay. I guess for me, I, 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 you know, I, I considered dropping this one down further, but I think there are a lot of interesting things about all the things I mentioned that I did like about it. And so I mm-hmm. think, um, I don't know, they, they kind of even out, I guess, even though I guess the things I'd normally prize more, like characters and acting, I feel like, you know, we get better stuff from Amy Steele than we get in this film, entire movie. Uh-huh. Um even so, I think, you know, those advances in the, in the makeup effects and the advancement of the franchise um, feeling more, I guess this being the beginning of something that would have a, a stronger continuity, for me, that's um, worthwhile. Mm-hmm. Those are our thoughts on Friday the 13th, Part 3 from 1982. Let us know what you think in the show notes for Episode 43. And at This, this point, one is also streaming on Netflix and Amazon Prime. Yes, thank you for saying that. So let's move into our uh, final review of this evening, which is our feature review of Friday the 13th, the final chapter from 1984. Our next movie is Friday the 13th, the final chapter, an immoral and reprehensible piece of trash that sold more tickets on its opening weekend than any other movie so far in 1984. And that is a very, very depressing commentary. It really makes me sad. Three times before, you have felt the terror known the madness lived the horror but this is the one you've been screaming for Friday the 13th the final chapter Jason is back he moves like a shadow Dark and silent. Sorry, you changed your mind? He never utters a word. He doesn't even seem to breathe. Where the hell's the corkscrew? He simply, mindlessly, mercilessly, kills. But now, Jason's reign of terror is over. Friday the 13th, the final chapter. 
Yeah, real great. Uh, Jason, you can't hear him, you can't see him, he hardly even breathes. He's the latest word in leading men from the geniuses at Paramount Pictures. You get the idea. Friday the 13th, the final chapter is 90 minutes of teenagers being strangled, stabbed, impaled, chopped up, and mutilated. That's all this movie is, is just mindless, bloody violence. And just think of the message this film offers to its teenage audience. The world is a totally evil place, this movie says. It'll kill you. It doesn't matter what your dreams and hopes and ambitions are. It doesn't matter if you have a new boyfriend or a new girlfriend or you've got plans for the future. You can forget those plans because you're going to wind up dead. There is literally nothing else in this movie. And the sickest thing is, this isn't the final chapter. That's just an advertising gimmick. The ending clearly sets up a sequel. And what I want to know is, I wonder if they're going to be heartless and cynical enough to make the sequel, because why not? They've already taken the bucket to the cesspool four times for the sludge. I think the people who made this, who made this movie ought to be ashamed of themselves, and that's what I think, James. Yeah. And I'm going to vote no. <laughs> I had a feeling you might. Friday the 13th, the final chapter... This was directed by Joseph Zito, and it's one of three films that was intended to be the last of the franchise, including part three, which didn't get that kind of a final chapter kind of ending, and, and uh, Jason Goes to Hell. But, you know, they wanted to stop doing this at this point. Their intention, again, was to kind of end it all. And um, this movie picks up right at the end of three, where, again, he was supposed to die at the end of three. He got the hatchet to the head. He's laying on the on the ground inside the barn. That was supposed to be it. And this movie starts right there in the barn. It comes out of the sky, beautiful helicopter shot. Suddenly, I'm like, oh, I'm in the hands of a filmmaker here. And uh, and we find Jason dead on the ground. He's loaded into a into a car, into an ambulance, taken to the morgue. Uh, or the hospital. It's, it's kind of unclear exactly. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming it must be the morgue, but it's kind of unclear exactly the how that's uh, arranged in this town. <laughs> but eventually he comes back to life. Um, he, he revives himself and he heads back home to Crystal Lake and where he meets up with a whole new set of kids. Um, this is all within three days. I mean, the guy's had a really rough week. Um, he's been chopped in the shoulder, chopped in the, in the head, and now he's, he's got a whole new house of kids, actually two houses of kids to deal with here. Right. In the final chapter, including kind of an infamous little kid played by Corey Feldman, Tommy Jarvis. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yes. So there's so much to talk about in this movie. I just want to start by saying this is my favorite by far of the first three films by large measure. And it's one of my favorite of the entire franchise. Yeah, it, it's it's up there for me, too. I think I might put it for me. It would be on the same level as the first one. But I really do enjoy this movie. I, I like the, the the characters they get together, um, and even like you're saying the, the the performers. I mean, well, Corey Feldman, but then you got Chris McGlover. Oh yeah, uh, he's incredible. Yeah. Playing this an early best, role this here. Is the best group of kids by large yes. margin. Agree. I'll, I'll I'll definitely agree with that. And they do give them like they do. Whereas you had like you were saying in the third movie where they weren't really doing much in between the kills, they're doing quite a bit this Absolutely. this time around. Characters um, have purpose, they've got arcs, mm -hmm. they've got goals and and motivations. Right. They've got backstories. <laughs> I mean, this is unheard of in the Friday the thirteenth <laughs> And and because Tom Savini yes. wanted a chance to end the series, he came back for this one. He did the effects for uh, part four. I believe he, he says, "Hey, someone. I think someone else got fired, and he kind of came back at that point." Oh, yeah. that's, that's possible. But yeah, he was the he was there for the end. You know, he says, "Let's let's 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 do it. Let's kill him." 
<laughs> yeah, and Joseph Zito, who's a great filmmaker, you know, when um, when uh, Steve Miner decided he didn't want to direct the fourth one, and I do like Steve Miner. I mean, we talked about Halloween H2O is one of my favorite. Mm-hmm. From that franchise, he directed that one, of course. Um, mm-hmm. Steve Miner's a great director, but um, for me, Joseph Zito was a huge step up for this franchise over the directors that came before him. Oh, yeah. um, he had done kind of a Friday the 13th ripoff movie in The Prowler, but it, it's an incredible slasher film, first of all, for anyone who oh, hasn't yeah. seen it. Oh, yeah. That's, that's top ten one of my One me. of my favorites of all time. It's one yes, of the very absolutely. best. Yeah. From 1981. And so, and so yeah. it was kind of a coup, I think, for them to pick a director like him up in this in the series for the purposes, as, as far as we knew at the time, of ending the series, or at least killing Jason off. And... Um, Man, he brought so much skill to the table, and not only this, you know the screenwriter that he was working with, um, and and the story that they came up with, um, and the makeup effects of Tom Savini, but the direction in this movie is top notch. I mean, it's really good filmmaking for this franchise, and it eclipses everything that's come before it. Yeah, well said. I think another thing that I like about this is that not all the kids are together this time. You actually have two different houses <laughs> yeah. of potential victims this time around. You know, it's not just they're all concentrated in one location. Um, you know, you got the family across the street. Yeah, like the, the Jarvis, Jarvis family across the street now. Can I say something about their house really quick for people who yeah. don't know? It's kind of a famous filming location that they, you know, they use it a lot in a lot of movies. So if you're watching, these are all terrible movies, but like Eraser or My Girl 2, you might, you might spot this same cabin. The, the TV show Entourage used it several times. But for me, the iconic usage is in one of my favorite comedy television shows, uh, Parks and Recreation. <laughs> um, in the episode The Hunting Trip, they go up and, they, and this is the one where someone shoots Ron in the head. Um, this is at the Jarvis house. I, I just love that Ron is, uh, is camping out at the Jarvis home. But anyway, <laughs> small side note for Parks and Recreation fans. Right. Yeah, <laughs> There's a scene in this too that I thought was really interesting the way they handled it. It it, it, it involved Corey Corey Feldman's character. He's a young kid. I mean, he's very young in this movie. Um, where he looks at the house across the street and he sees the girls undressing. You know, yeah. He 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 plays it the way a kid that age would react. It's not a movie reaction where he's gawking his mouth open, standing there staring. He's like giggling. He's getting sort of giddy. He's not looking away. <laughs> yep. <laughs> but he handles it like a kid that age really would. Yeah. And I thought it was kind of interesting that they let something like that in here. Because normally, like I said, in any of these type of movies, the guys would be like, oh, my God, look at that. And they'd stand there or or the kid or, or whatever. This is a kid reacting like a kid would in that situation. And it always kind of stuck with me watching this movie. So that was pretty cool. He's really good in it, and I, you know, he'd been acting already for years since. Like, yes, he had. I mean, from I think his his first thing was that uh, he did a commercial, like a McDonald's commercial or something right. like that. But you're right; he had been. I think he was in the Bad News Bears TV show and, yeah, and like 26 and, episodes of that. But but yeah. this was the bit the year he really broke out. Um, yeah. This is '84 when this movie comes Gremlins. out. This yeah, is yeah, Gremlins, yeah. Yeah, this came out in, in April, Friday the 13th of April. Uh, was the release of this movie. And then, yeah, in June, Gremlins comes out the same summer. And that kind of starts him on his road to stardom. The next year, he goes and he makes uh, The Goonies and then... Stand and by he, me. He's on his yeah, way. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. 
Absolutely. And it's real quick. Um, I know I mentioned this in a previous podcast. So uh, for those listeners who have heard this already, please forgive me. But it kind of fits in here because it is a Friday the 13th uh, tale. Um, the uh, the book Choreography, uh, which Corey Feldman just came out with pretty recently. And it's, yes. a, it's a very good book. I mean, I do recommend it. And I actually have the audio book. And, and he himself is the one who's uh, who's reading it. Uh, which adds a little bit to it because he actually can put the emotion behind it and mean something, um, you know, because he's obviously had a very troubled life. But he's talking about the making of this film. And one of the things um, he's mentioning, well, first off, he said it gave him nightmares for weeks making this film. Uh, but anyway, mm. um, he's talking about uh, I just thought this was kind of interesting. He said this this sort of showed him what a star trip can do almost like a diva moment type thing can do to shut down a production. Apparently um, the night before uh, all of the teens, all the kids playing the, you know, the characters in this movie, the older ones, not Corey Feldman. He was a little young, went into town to get drunk, you know, have a good time. Chris McGlover went with him, but he did not go into the bar. He went to a toy store that was in this small little town where they were filming. And he spent about a grand on toys. And one of the things he bought was a yellow submarine. I'm assuming from the Beatles. You know, I don't know yeah. for sure. But he had this little yellow submarine. Well, Corey Feldman comes out one day and he notices that there are people in the water. Chris McGlover is looking very, you know, sort of uh, upset. And someone comes up to the director and he's like, what's going on? And the director's like, ah, Crispin lost one of his toys and he refuses to go on until we find it. He had, he had this yellow submarine had sunk to the bottom of the lake and oh. Crispin Glover refused to continue until it was recovered. It ended up costing him, I think two hours before they finally found that yellow submarine. But Corey Feldman points to that as like his first sort of realization of what a star can do. To shut down a to shut down a movie. Mm-hmm. This is pre Back yeah. to the Future. He wasn't even a star yet. <laughs> no, he wasn't. He wasn't. But he refused to continue. And I guess by that yeah. point, he's a major character in the movie. So yeah. it's like, okay, let's find this stupid toy and let's let's get on with it. His father was an actor too. I don't know if you ever saw the the Bond movie Diamonds Are Forever. Oh yes. You have you have the two um this the the the, 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 the sort of inferences the homosexual henchmen. Mm-hmm. Um, Crispin Glover's father played one of them. Mm, neat. Yeah. Actually, that's one of my favorite Bond films, in fact, that one. Diamonds Are Forever? Oh, yeah. Okay. Totally. Yeah, it must be, if he had $1,000 to spend on toys at a toy store, then he may, he, he must have been somewhat successful already at this point. Yeah. So right. I don't money. know. Was he, was he in the... I know he had done a teen comedy by this point. He had done one of those uh, the sex comedy that I think he had done just prior to this, but I can't say for sure. Um, it was definitely pre-Back to the Future. Mm-hmm. That's funny. Pre-Back to the Future. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, to me, one of the most interesting things about this film uh, is that it does surround this Corey Feldman's uh, Tommy Jarvis character. I mean, he is a a horror movie lover, just like us. Mm-hmm. And um, he makes mos- monster masks, and mm-hmm. um, it, it's super cool to me because here's another example, kind of like that, um, the little girl that's being babysat in Halloween. It's like uh, the kid in Salem's Lot. Yeah, yeah, or that yeah, kid. Yeah, that's right. It, it's yeah. like there are characters every once in a while in horror films 
that we, the horror fans ourselves, uh, tend to relate to. And what's neat about that is in this movie, in terms of the structure, they have switched a focus from having a final girl to having this um, younger brother. Now, the... Now this is not mine. This is not my, uh, you know, my my little theory here. This is again from uh, my buddy uh, J.K. Muir, John Kenneth Muir, and he he said I really like this. He said that at this point, the Friday the Thirteenth franchise, you know, we're four years into it, and at this point, the kids who are teenagers and who loved the you know the first film and the second film. By this point, their younger siblings would have been coming up into the ranks in the teenage years, and they'd be familiar with the film. So when this one came out, you know, they um, may have been, you know, shifting into where they were going to see the film. And he thought it was really interesting strategy on the filmmaker's part to get this younger brother character who's a horror fan, and he ends up taking the place of kind of the final girl in this. And it was a way to usher in a new audience and to accommodate this new audience. And, and that, that's extremely fascinating to me about this film. Yeah, that's, that is very interesting. And that's a good point. That's an excellent point. J.K. Muir. I wish I could yeah. take credit for it, but I can't. <laughs> <clears throat> what about, did you guys notice that in this, um, I would say at least, there's not as much suspense. There's not as much sneakiness. Uh, Jason is really blatant and intense. Yeah, like he'll throw like people through windows in order to like you know access the. <laughs> you know what I mean? It, there, it's mm-hmm. just not a lot of yeah. stalking around or sneaking around or slumbering around. Not slumbering, lumbering around. Yeah, no, you're, you're right. And, and do you think a nod to Halloween two at the beginning there? Or? Hmm. I don't know. What do you? I don't know. What do you guys think? I don't know. I was just. I was just throwing it out there because we're always talking about like if they were influenced. I would think by this point in the series, the the filmmakers might have stopped the whole. Hey, let's yeah. borrow from this one. Let's borrow from that one. I think it might just be more coincidence than anything. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe. You know, because by this <clears throat> point they're the successful franchise. They're the most successful. They're the only game in town at this point, as far as. The franchises go. I mean, Nightmare on Elm Street didn't come out until 84 when this movie came out. How, by this point, you only had Halloween 2 as far as the Michael Myers portions of yep. that. Yeah, part three you know? came so, out the same year. Yeah. So as far as franchises go, they were it. So they didn't need to borrow from anybody at this point. They were the ones setting the standard. Now other people are going to steal from them. Well, as I understand it, part Friday the Thirteenth Part Two, one of the original scripts called for, um, you know, before the actress kind of backed out, it kind of called for it to take place in hospitals. My understanding. Wow, that would have been that would have been a mistake, I think. Yeah. yeah, I agree. I definitely agree. Yeah, so I'm glad that did not happen. You're glad that she got a stalker and decided not to do the movie. Yeah, <laughs> I am glad about that. <laughs> no, that stalkers are scary. Yeah, if people yeah. want to see a scary yeah, we hear, movie, we here at the we here at the horror movie podcast do not recommend stalking. No, no, no we don't. But um, one time Wolfman Josh here, <laughs> he recommended a documentary to me that is not a horror film, but it is super creepy, and it's called "I Think We're Alone Now" from two thousand eight. <laughs> it's yeah. about stalkers, and man. That is a great little documentary. I really enjoyed it, and it made me feel extremely uncomfortable. <laughs> so, yeah. so that's just a little side note for people that want to check that out. 
Um, speaking of, you know, uncomfortable things, one other point about this movie that, um, that I liked that, um, this guy, JK Muir made, he says a lot of times in horror films, he actually defends women in horror because of the way that they have, you know, the strength and the intelligence to defeat the monsters and become final girls and so forth. But in this particular film, he said that it really goes badly, you know, for, for women, he says, because there's uh, a set of female adolescent twins in the film who are eager to hook up with boyfriends. And when the shy one is left with the nasty, irritating character named Teddy, she acquiesces. She puts her head down like an obedient puppy and goes to him on the sofa to solicit his attention. And he says, this is icky. And the only message sent is that it's better to be with a nasty man than to have no man at all. And then he says one more thing. Also, Trish and Tommy's mom is depicted in the film almost perpetually jogging because she's divorced, you see, and she has to watch her figure. (laughs) So... You know, sometimes. Well, hold on, Teddy doesn't end up hooking up with the twins. He ends up alone, watching the old film strip, right? But but she um she hangs out with him, right? Yeah, yeah, right. And, and that's yeah. what she's saying. Like, and instead of just you know staying clear from him, you know, she's like, well, that guy's better than no guy, even though he sucks. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Right. So anyway, I. I don't always pick up on things like that, and I try to um, look for that. So I thought that was a neat point. But yeah. Anyways, what else, Josh? I know you love this film, so tell us what else. I'm losing my voice, guys. <laughs> I, I just think it's. Uh, I honestly don't have that much to say about it. I just think. Um, I I just like. It has everything that I liked about the previous installments, but we actually have Jason as I like to see Jason. You know, he's he becomes the Jason that I first knew as a child um, with yeah. the hockey mask. He, we also get the best direction that we've had the whole series. Mm-hmm. We get some of the best characters and actors we've had the whole series. And, the, you know, the death scenes remain kind of on the same level as part three. So, you know, and, and in some cases are even better, like with Samantha. But, um, and, and, you know, and the window scene. I mean, I think that's pretty cool as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so to me, it's just a combination of all those things just make this my favorite of the first four films. Um, I think one interesting thing that was happening is Joseph Zito and, um, Corey Feldman were talking about the, you know, the continuation of this Tommy Jarvis character, which we get a hint at, um, you know, in the last shot of the film, the last shot of Tommy of where this series could go. Um, and according to Corey Feldman, that was what part four. Five was supposed to be about it was supposed to be starring Corey Feldman and really following Tommy Jarvis. Now, of course, we get a little bit of Tommy Jarvis, but this would have been a, a Tommy Jarvis centered film. And um, and apparently Steven Spielberg held held Corey against his will to his Goonies contract. And he forced him to go shoot Goonies, even though he wanted to be the star of Friday the 13th Part 5. <laughs> And now, uh, I will say in the in choreography, he doesn't talk about that at all. Okay. Well, he mentions that on the Camp hmm. Crystal Lake documentary. He very well may. Yeah, he, he very well may. In his choreography, he has nothing but glowing things to say about Goonies and Spielberg. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think he was joking around because it's for the Friday the 13th audience. You know, he's got right. we have Spielberg right. to blame for this. 
But I do, but but you know, I mean, I don't, I don't think he was seriously upset with Spielberg. Okay, but, yeah. But yeah. the way he explains it is that he he and Joe Zito had kind of pitched this as a way to continue the franchise without Jason, and that was intended to be it. So so if you like Jason, and if you like any Jason in you know part six, seven, eight, nine, ten, you kind of have Spielberg to thank for that as well, because otherwise it would have been a Tommy Jarvis centered um, right. franchise after this point. I just saw something really interesting in this Camp Crystal Lakes, just real quick, that the t- character, according to director Joe Cito, the character of Tommy Jarvis, pardon me, it is getting late, was a tribute to Tom Savini. <laughs> Very interesting. That was the reason that they made him uh, <laughs> so big into the, the monsters and the, the masks and everything. Yeah, well, and it's- The machete that he uses at the end is Tom Savini's machete that he uses in Day of the Dead, or sorry, oh, Dawn nice. of the Dead, when he hits that zombie in the head in Dawn nice. of the Dead. Mm-hmm. You basically, you've got Tommy Jarvis doing that exact same move to Jason with the exact same machete, um, right. which is kind of a fun little nerd fact. Yeah, it is neat. Right. Nice. I Very like, cool. I like that a lot. Yeah. yeah. I always like finding out things like that. Like I'd like in the movie 1408, the one with John Cusack that came out a few years ago, the axe that they used to break into his um, the apartment where he is at the end of that movie um is the same one that Jack Nicholson used in The Shining. Wow. Yeah. Neat. Exact same axe. No, another yet another Stephen King story. <laughs> now, um my understanding was from the screenwriter uh Barney Cohen that basically he, you know, they had again been told this is the last one. Kill Jason. So to make sure he was dead, he had written a scene in which Jason's head, you know, with that machete gets split completely in half right down the middle was how it was intended to be portrayed. Um, and then Tom Savini is the one that came up with the way Jason actually dies, you know, mimicking his own kind of machete chop from Dawn, from Dawn of the Dead. Um, and in doing so, left it open that Jason could come back from the dead, apparently, is the way the screen right now, you know, I'm pretty sure he would have been dead. And, and, you know, and, and I'm also pretty sure that in part six, he comes back all of Frankenstein and that's intended to be, you know, a, a bringing him back from the dead. But according to screenwriter, Barney Cohen, um, when he got the new pages that showed how the death was going to be done, he said he knew right then they were going to make more movies. Right. And it's interesting because again, um, the, the, the heads of the studios, apparently, you know, everyone's like, oh, Paramount wanted to stop this. But Michael Eisner was the uh, sort of the, the studio chief at the time. And and from the very top, there was not a, a desire because of the bottom line, because these movies always added money at the end of the year for them. Yeah. You know, and he said, he's, you know, was it this guy? Like, what's his name here? He talks about he goes, yeah, sure. They got letters. Sure. They got letters to complain. He goes, but you know what? They got more letters, obviously, for The Last Temptation of Christ than they got for any of the Friday the 13th movies. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> you know, and, and so he was saying it's not as far as as far as the top, very top guys go. They weren't looking to end the series. I mean, I think it was Frank Mancuso Jr. That was the one that was initially kind of the driving force between him right. wanting to, to end it at that point. Right. Yeah, I think you're right. It's really tough because anytime you get a character or a franchise that you love, you're kind of torn, right? Because... I had a film professor that I love that I always quote all the time. He talked about the problem with sequels is that in order to continue with the sequel, 
then your main character has to go back on the change. That was one problem. But also, you know, a sequel is nothing more than, you know, we see the same types of characters doing the same things over and over. So it's just the same on and on. And it's, on on one hand, if it's making money, they're just going to keep doing it. But on the other hand, it's like, you kind of wish they wouldn't run something that you love into the ground. Well, yeah. And then again, you know, and they always have to figure out how we're going to get them to come back. Yeah. Like you're saying, I mean, they did the same thing. I mean, if you look, even in the classic era of, of universal, some of the way they brought those monsters back, you know, like with Frankenstein, he just kept, I mean, one time they thawed him out of ice, you know? So it, it was just a way to just oh. keep, uh, uh, that was the, that was the Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. You're thinking of Jan Gell. <laughs> no, no, not Jangel. No, no, I, I don't think I would ever. As a matter of fact, I, I, I think we, you have to do some editing here, Jay, because the word classic and Jangel should not even be in the same podcast. <laughs> but yeah, and, and, and Frankenstein meets the Wolfman, which is uh, half of an excellent movie, um, the first half, uh, until they get to where the uh, the Frankenstein monster and it's just, it's more unfortunate than anything it was Bella Lugosi and unfortunately the, he was playing the, the monster blind they told him uh, we're setting this up so that it's going to be explained that the monster can't talk anymore he has brain damage plus he's blind so that's why he's walking around with his hands out um well they cut out the blind portion so it just looks like a bad interpretation of the character um but that the second half of the movie is no good, but they thaw him out of ice. How many times did they keep bringing back the Frankenstein monster? And they just kept finding more ways to bring him back. One, you know, then Bride of Frankenstein he had fallen. He he didn't die when the windmill collapsed. He fell into a, into this pit. Mm. You know, and so they just kept finding ways. And you know, he died at the end of Bride of Frankenstein, but there he was for Son of Frankenstein. Yeah. You know, so they just kept finding ways to bring him back, and then. They do the same thing, you know, so we can sit here and sort of pick on Friday the 13th for, for its lapses of logic. But even in the days of Universal, they didn't they said, we don't care how, just bring them back. Well, I'm just saying the reason I think it's problematic when this happens is because it takes away the weight of death. Because de- death is supposed to be final. That's supposed to be like the way that a story arc ends once and for all for a character and with these these characters, you know, like Jason Voorhees, Michael Myers, it's like, you know, death is not an end to them. And it's just it's just a way to say, OK, this movie's over. Come back next time. And you know what I mean? And and it just takes yeah. the weight away from it. And I know this is all obvious what we're talking about, but it's still I think it's a little bit unfortunate. But the reason this keeps happening, number one, is money. And number two is when you hit on something you get a monster that is popular and that is successful, you know, it's really, you can't always bet on or you can't always predict what monster is going to be franchise material. And so, you know, that's, that's another reason why they milk them to death. Yeah. But I think you have to say number one, two and three are money because I think even if the, no, and no matter how beloved the character may be, if the the, the most recent film didn't make money, you're not going to see him again. I just wish that somebody on the creative end, Sean Cunningham or someone, had sat down with some really talented writers and said, we don't know if this is going to keep going, but if it does, this is the world we want our character to exist in. Because I think that I just get so frustrated by not just this franchise, obviously, but the way so many horror franchises just kind of stumble 
from film to film and make it, I don't know, take kind of the, the joy out of the continuation. I think sometimes it works. Most of the time it, it doesn't, though. And I, I don't know, for me, you take a character like Jason, so far in this film series, I think that's the, the reason I like this movie. We're finally cementing, this is who this character is. And I feel like it's been pretty all over the place up until this moment. You know, it's a very, you know, obviously, especially the first film is completely different, but I feel like the first two, you know, parts two and three are really kind of toying around trying to find their groove. Mm -hmm. And this is the one for me that finds it. And then they, they're able to stick with now they don't stick with it for very long. <laughs> part, no, five, no. part five, you know, but, but, but this is the one they're going to come back to. This is the one where they're like, okay, part four worked. Let's try to capture the essence of that. And I think, you know, part six, I think gets it right as well. But I think, you know, when they're, when they, when they've identified what's right about the character and what's right about the franchise, I, I don't know. I think it takes, I think it takes more, a, a really strong producer or someone guiding that ship that cares about it um, to, to make them any good to say, mm -hmm. what is the essence of Jason? And to me, Camp Crystal Lake is a big, now I say that as a big fan of part eight. Um, you know, and we'll get to the other films later, but I think, you know, at some point when New Line Cinema takes over the franchise, we're getting to where we're getting to a point where the narrative is strained so far from what made this intriguing in the first place. Mm -hmm. That's when I start having problems with the with any franchise. You know, yeah. and I think I want to see as many good stories as we can find out of the strongest of the source material, and when they're depleted you know i don't want to see jason go tropical and frankly i don't care <laughs> to see jason go to space but <laughs> or hell or, or hell or like and i and i know that i'm new york city shit, i know our, our well see I, I, again i say that as a fan of part eight I and i know that a lot of our listeners are fans of jason x a lot of our listeners are fans of jason yeah. x mm -hmm. it's, a, so, it's a guilty pleasure of mine too but we'll get to that later on but yeah yeah but i i think um I think, and again, I don't want to get ahead of ourselves. I think what it does, the problem for me, though, is it violates the basics of the franchise. And to me, part four is just right there in the mix. To me, this is hitting on all cylinders um, mm -hmm. for kind of being where I want this franchise to be at. Well, let me ask you guys something. Do you think it's possible with the, the right writers or, you know, with a fresh idea do you think that a, a franchise could go on, you know, indefinitely? I mean, do you think mm -hmm. do you think it's possible for every single film of a franchise? And now I'm not saying if it's likely, but just possible for it to be good and have a great story and so forth. Because I, well, I do. I, I think, think that's possible. I think it takes a lot of forethought, and I think it takes a cohesive, creative group that's going to protect the property from film to film. I mean, if you take something like. The Walking Dead, which is a television series, they're still producing 40 minute episodes, you know, what, 13, 17 times a year. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, I think, and you know, some people will say that that's no good, whatever. But if you were to take those and condense them even into 13 films, like we're going to be talking about over the course of this franchise, you could do that pretty effectively with The Walking Dead. It would have great continuity. It would have, you could, you know, you could use all the strongest character moments, all the strongest scares. And really have some solid films within that, but it takes someone who cares about the franchise enough to protect it. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you look at something like James Bond, 
I mean, they've extended to the point now where they've gone beyond Ian Fleming's novels. I mean, they're starting to take, you know, they're, they're taking from other sources because they don't have any, they don't have any more of the Ian Fleming uh, source material to go back to, but yet it's still continuing. And there's still, you could even make, you could even make the argument that this recent batch of movies, at least two of them with the newest James Bond are, are among the strongest in the series. Well, they went to space too, didn't they? But they got yes, back they to did. Earth. Yes, That's they did. And the reason out. they went to the reason they went to space originally, the next movie was going to be for your eyes only. And the reason they went to space was because Star Wars was so big, and that's why Moonraker is such a mess because it was cobbled together at the last minute. <laughs> and then they got back to base, and you know, and I think when they get back to basics and the essence of the characters is when people are the most happy. Yes. Yeah, but it's always this this delicate balance. It's a fine line. I understand why the writers feel conflicted because I'm sure they're told something like this. Okay, we want more of the same, but don't make it too much more of the same. It needs to be fresh, but it also needs to be familiar. And there's always a really delicate, fine line that they got to walk. And that'd be hard. They're making a second Beetlejuice movie right now. But I remember years ago they were talking about doing a Beetlejuice sequel and Kevin Smith had been hired to write the screenplay for it. And they wanted it to take place in Hawaii and have a tragically. I, I heard that. Yes. I heard about that. How terrible would that have been? That would not have been, that would not have been good at all. That, that first Beetlejuice is the, it works because of uh, partly because of the setting and, and the characters and, mm. and to take them out of that, and to put him in a different yes, you know what? You're going to open it up for the character to have more interactions, to do more one-liners. But part of what the first Beetlejuice, what made it good, was all of the characters. Yeah. You know, it was not just Beetlejuice. That would have been that, the new movie. Would I, if they're going to do that? It's going to be just Beetlejuice. So that would have been a cop out. Get yeah, it? get it, Kevin Smith. Nice. Anyways, sorry. One one last thing I was going to say about um, the final chapter, you guys. Uh, Do you think it's weird, and we're going to be getting to this next film in our next episode, episode 44, which comes out next Friday, but do you think it's just such a train wreck in titling sequence that this is called Friday the 13th, the final chapter, and then the next one is Friday the 13th, a new beginning? (laughs) That's just... No? Is that... It just bugs me. It's like yeah. the final chapter and then a new beginning. I don't know. It's just funny to me. Well, again, it's just I have a little forethought. Why call it the final chapter? Yeah. You know, like just, just call it part four. That's right. That's right. Okay. Well, let's wrap up this review. I know that on the East Coast for Dr. Shock right now, just so the listeners know, it is almost 2.30 a.m. So if we sound like we're running out of steam then we probably are so and we don't want to like drag out these reviews too much if we're not you know firing on all cylinders so let's wrap up with our final thoughts and our ratings on this i just i'll kick it off here i think what you said in the very beginning about joseph zito taking this over um you know directing i love the prowler you can see his strong directorial hand in this film as well. Um, kills are good in this film. In fact, there are a lot in this film. I mean, there are a lot of good ones. Uh, they're not just like, I mean, you got spears and the and the groin and right. I mean, you got you got some things that are kind of unforgettable. Oh, I, I like uh, 
Ted's kill, right? The knife yeah. in the back of the head through the theater movie screen. I mean, that's kind of cool because what are they trying to say to us? Jason might get you too as you're watching this. I don't know. I, I like stuff like that. But I think the film is really well made. I, I like how they switch from the final girl, you know, to, to this uh, horror fan that we relate to. And I think that's pretty cool. And everything that's been said is, is I, I totally agree with that. In fact, I couldn't put it better. So, I mean, for me, this is this is an eight out of ten. Um, it's definitely a buy. And if you're only going to see like, let's just say you're a listener who you're who's like, I'm not going to watch all of those Friday the 13th films. Well, if you're only going to see like a couple of them, you know, this is definitely one that I think you should see. What do you say, Wolfman Josh? I mean, I've kind of said everything I can think of saying. I think this, of all the films that come before, this is my favorite. Um, I do appreciate the first film a lot as a standalone. I can appreciate the second as a standalone. I appreciate the third for its transitional elements and for the upping of the gore factor and how, you know, how much more uh, effective that was. But for me, this is where the franchise hits its stride. And other than Amy Steele from Part 2, this has everything I want in a Friday the 13th film. To me, this comprises, you know, and, and Pamela Voorhees from the first film. Um, if, if, if I could somehow add those Ginny and Mrs. Voorhees performances to this film, this would be everything that's good about Friday the 13th, in my opinion, in this movie. So... Uh, yeah, this is a must-see for me. We've asked our listeners to give us their list of top three. This is in my list of top three. I give it a nine. It's a buy it, and I love it. Okay, Dr. Shock, what's your rating? You know, like Josh, this is one of my favorite in the series. I put this right up there with the first one. Uh, I mean, on the same level for me. I, I, you know, and, and, and there are times when I kind of go back and forth as to which one's my favorite, to be honest with you. But uh, I'm going to commit. I, I'm going to say a nine point five. I mean, wow. this one's like like right there for me. Yeah. Uh, and that's that's what I gave the first one. I gave it a nine point five, and I think this one's uh, at least on par with that. Yep. Um, you know, for so many reasons, and, and a lot of what we had touched on here already. Absolutely, dude. I couldn't agree more. Yeah, this is my highest rated of the whole franchise. I think. Yeah, I can I can imagine, and I think it deserves it. You know, it definitely deserves it because what it was is it's, it's almost like they they were just leading up to this one, and it's a shame that they got off on it so quick. Yeah, you know that by the time the next one comes around, they try something even newer, and it just doesn't work. Yeah, I'm a big fan of eight. I'm a I'm an apologist for part eight, but I think this and six are the two like to me these are just Jason movies, and I right four and six are where it's at for me. But. Yeah, I would I would agree with that. Okay, and that concludes our uh, review for Friday the 13th, the final chapter from 1984. Again, this one is streaming on Netflix and Amazon Prime as well. Yes, it is. And I think that just about wraps up episode 43 of Horror Movie Podcast. You can join us again this very next Friday, which is February 27th, for part three of our five-part series. And we're going to be reviewing, what, the next, the next three films at least, right? Friday the 13th, The New Beginning. Yeah, we're going to be reviewing five, six, seven, and probably eight, I'm guessing. Yeah, probably. I, I think you're probably right about that. So, um, yeah, so be ready for those. Watch along with us. We really enjoy that. Um, we'd love to have you participating. You can find all our episodes at horrormoviepodcast.com, and you can follow us on Twitter at horrormoviecast. And by the way, I have another show about movies. It's called moviepodcastweekly.com, where we miss Josh really bad. 
Um, you can hear Josh's other podcast about movies at moviestreamcast.com. It's a very cool show. It is actually one of my favorite movie podcasts out there. You were on it. Yeah, yeah, but I'm just saying, even even the episodes without me on it, oh. I, I think you and... I, I mean, you do a great job, and now you got some cool co-hosts as well, and um, you, you've just done a tremendous job since you've taken over. So people, check out MovieStreamCast.com if you haven't already. And you can follow my friend Josh here on Twitter, at IcarusArts. And you can find Dr. Shock's astounding movie blog at dvdinfatuation.com and follow him on Twitter at dvdinfatuation. And you can find our friend Dr. Walking Dead, Kyle Bishop. He has a book on Amazon called American Zombie Gothic. It's amazon.com. You can follow him on Twitter at Dr. Walking Dead. That's Dr. Walking Dead. We want to thank Frederick Ingram for the use of his music for our theme song. And you can find Fred's music at frederickingram.com. And Josh, will you tell the listeners one more time um, what they should do if they want to win a Jason Voorhees action figure and a little poster? We're doing the same thing as last time. Come to horrormoviepodcast.com or email Jason at horrormoviepodcast at gmail.com or tweet us at horrormoviecast on Twitter. And let us know your top three movies in the Friday the 13th franchise in order, as well as the city that you hail from. And you need to either leave us a review on iTunes, send out a tweet about the show, or Facebook something, something to help us get the word out to all those people out there who don't know who we are yet. And if you can do that, you're going to be in the drawing for the Jason Voorhees reaction figure and a little poster. Yeah, a little poster. That's right. Jay, it would be awesome if we could go out on one of the craziest bits of music from this entire franchise. It's the theme, the disco theme from Friday the 13th, part three. I love it. It's by the band Hot Ice, which is really Harry Manfredini's, a.k.a. secret uh, identity there. So um, We all have one. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and um, Mine is called Jay of the Dead. Or Jason X. That's true. All right. Well, I think that's it for episode 43. So thank you for listening and join us again next Friday for Horror Movie Podcast, where we're what, Josh? Dead serious about horror movies. 